Welcome to Rogue Bogues. This is episode 13, the lucky 13, right around St. Patrick's Day Pro. Coincidence? Ah, uh, man. I don't know, know what the fuck is a coincidence these days, brother. But yeah, why not? Nothing's been lucky in my life besides tricking my wife into marrying me. But besides <laughs> that, I really haven't had that much luck. So this 13 means absolutely zero to me. Yeah, it's, uh, it's been an interesting time, but uh, look, follow us on all our socials. We're going to do a promo real quick. So, at Hoop Consultants for Pro, at Rogue Bogues on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, wherever you get your podcasts, you can download our basketball, the My Journeys, and even the car stuff if you like cars. So, check that out. But um, I did watch Ted Lasso. I'm, I'm eight episodes in and Roy Kent, I think, happily say I'm happy to be him. Spot on. How about when he just goes into the uh, kids and starts swearing at the kids when he's talking to that kid, uh, that kid fucking soccer team? That's I don't think that's something you would do, but I I, I love that guy, man. He's he's my favorite dude. Uh, he's got a rough exterior, but he's got a good heart, so I'm all good with that. And he he gets a hot girl at the end too, so it all worked out. All right, let's get rolling. It's the NCAA March Madness, Madness has started. It's um, kind of all over the place. There's some teams that just got disqualified, I believe, from coronavirus um, contact tracing and whatnot. So that was interesting. But um, I guess March Madness is an interesting time for everyone for different reasons. I mean, my memories of it were I was fortunate enough to play in two tournaments my freshman year. We made a run late in the year one-hour conference tournament on the buzzer and got to the um, NCAAs, lost to Boston College in the first round and we're kind of a young team, weren't that, weren't that good. And then my sophomore year, we went to the Sweet 16. We beat UTEP in the first round. University of Oklahoma had Calvin Sampson at that point, beat them. Um, we weren't favorites going into that game and then lost to Kentucky in the Sweet 16. But look, I think it's a it's an interesting time right now just because of everything going on in the world. I don't think it's getting as much cut through as it usually does, but it is usually a fun time. Like there's, you know, these small schools battling big schools and, and usually the story of that is, is why I like it. I mean, seeing old Roberts win yesterday, you know, seeing some teams that, that are playing against these big schools that get all the high school Americans, like I generally would cheer against that small school nine times out of 10. And that's that's why I love it. And I guess why I hate it is that, you know, it's it's one bad game for a team that you like and, and you're out of there. But give us your kind of run through of March Madness. I mean, as a kid, even now, I mean, what are your fondest memories and, and what do you hate about it? It's just a cool time because it's like you said, you could have so many upsets in these smaller schools that just sort of bring it you know when they're not expected and they sort of make a run i remember you know rick patino's team in 87 providence i was like 12 years old and that's when i started getting into the tournament and his team was he took the team over like two years before that and they were like eighth place every year in the big east and they made the final four, you know, two years into his job. And, you know, it's like those are the things that you really get excited for. And then I was a North Carolina fan and watching those teams. Then the 93 team that that won the championship over the Fab Five. And it's just a cool time, man. It, it's a it's a cool time to watch those guys play and, and, and get fired up. And, you know, everybody's records thrown out the window and you never know what's going to happen. And it's 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 cool to watch those kids. Those Cinderella stories are cool, and and watching that sort of play out. So those are the only really memories that I have. I mean, besides entering, you know, winning one office pool one year with uh, when Kevin Love and those guys made the Final Four uh, in Indianapolis with LSU. But that was really about it. Nothing much. But the, yeah, it's a it's a cool time. And it's a little different now with COVID, and especially where basketball is today with all these kids leaving early. You know, you don't really have a lot of those four-year guys coming in. You know, those teams have been together for a long time. That's why it's a shit show sometimes with the tournament because these kids really haven't played together that long. 
And it's tough to sort of make a run where back in the day with most of those guys being three and four year guys, it, it made the tournament a little bit more fun. But um, yeah, it's cool nonetheless. Yeah, I think the cool part of it for me is watching, you know, you got your North Carolinas, your Dukes, your Kentuckys and, and the big schools that basically don't, they don't have to be overcoached. I mean, I think it's more ego management when you're at those big schools because you're getting all the best players and you got to put in somewhat of a system. But let's be honest, those schools can go ISO at the drop of a hat because they have so much talent. But then seeing those teams play against a methodical small school that's like a 14 seed that just runs some fucking offense that goes for 30 straight seconds and back cuts and flare screens and it's just real mechanical, methodical. I love seeing those battles because like it's one, one team that it's army-like or military-like and then one team that's way better talent-wise but, you know, it can get frustrated. So, I, I love seeing like that David and Goliath and I think that's what, what it's all about and you see different systems, different coaches. Yeah. Some of those small schools do have do have your four-year seniors but they're, they're never going to be professional so you're never going to hear about them again and they get their one opportunity to, you know, hey, I, I beat Michael Jordan or hey, I beat this guy, Camelo Anthony, whoever it was, right? Um, I beat them when I was in, in college. So, I think that's why it's cool and unique. Yeah, I remember like Alonzo Morning. I forgot what year it was for Alonzo uh, with the Georgetown. They were like a one seed and they were playing Princeton. And Princeton almost beat them. Like you're talking about like their their system is back cutting and screening. And, you know, it's slow. It's methodical. And Georgetown was a juggernaut. You know, they had uh, Morning, Matumbo, and they had all these guys. I think it was like 89 or so. And they, they almost they, – um, Princeton had a chance to win it. They were down one and Alonzo blocked this guy's shot. You know, that, that could have went in. It was a pretty easy shot. And, you know, he came out of nowhere to snatch a block. You know, and then, I mean, imagine like David Goliath. Imagine Brad Stevens taking Butler to two, you know, two final fours. And, all, you know, uh, losing a national championship one. And I think he just lost in the, last shot in the round yeah. of four. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, I mean, it's cool to see that. Imagine Butler, a team with, you know, I mean, they had a, they had an NBA, a couple of NBA guys, but beating up on those teams that, you know, you don't think, but, you know, you don't think Butler's this powerhouse. But, you know, it's pretty cool to watch that. If you watch the movie Hoosiers, you know, with the high school team out of Indiana, it's like that where teams out of nowhere sort of take people by storm. So, yeah, that's like you said, that's pretty fun. That's pretty fun. Yeah, time. I'm, a, I'm a fan of the one off like the olympics and the and march madness it's like one one the best team can have one bad night and be out you know that's the beauty of it whereas in the nba and even baseball and whatnot when you have a five game or a seven game series usually the cream rises to the top more often than not but with a uh with a one-off game and you can have like you said alonzo morning the number one seed they can lose but we move on into obviously <laughs> today's world this flows on into a political gender issue there was a picture tweeted by a girl a lady by the name of ali kirshner performance coach at stanford posted Images to Instagram highlighting the discrepancy between the weight weight rooms provided to men's and women's players while they live and play in the bubble style set up in Indianapolis. While the men were equipped with a giant floor space filled with racks of dumbbells, plates, bars, racks, the women were given just one rack of dumbbells and a pile of yoga mats. And I've seen the photo, of, and I, I'm just I just think like NCAA, like a bunch of I, I, don't, I don't even know in the current climate how they would think that that is acceptable. Whatever your opinions are on men's sport versus women's sport is irrelevant. You, you're just thinking to yourself, like, <laughs> are they not looking out the window of what's going on the last three or four years? I want to know, seriously, like, I want to know Johnny or Jenny Dumbfuck who set this thing up where they have this huge complex for the for the men and literally – 
a Motel 6 where they don't even leave the light on for you fucking weight room. <laughs> like how, like with today's world of everybody hating the fucking NCAA, I'm not an NCAA hater. I actually, you know, I mean, they, the, the platform they give these players and these athletes, are, it, it's good. It's, it, it's, it's good and it's positive. But they've been taking a fucking pounding the last two or three years. Like how do they think that someone's not going to take a picture of this and send it out into the world and and now they got to explain themselves and they and I, I I don't know if you saw the picture but they redid the locker and the weight room in San Antonio and now they've got like a it's pretty nice like you know a much bigger you know all these racks and all these weights and all these But why bands can't the and, big one be shared? Yeah. I don't I don't get it. That's why I was like are, we, are we missing something? Cuz in that photo funnily enough in that photo that Ali tweeted there was a, actually a woman walking around in that big weight room so I was like like what the hell was going on? But maybe it was a workout help and set up. But my thing is like most weight sessions are staggered. So generally, you're not going to have, um, you know, five teams in there at once that are going to p- potentially play each other because there could be a bit of back and forth. There could be whatever, right? So usually a team will get your hour and, and you use it. So I don't understand why it can't be spaced out where they get access to it. Or maybe they get access with the guys group. It's not like the men are walking around fucking in underwear or, or, or vice versa where there's a, a naked issue or, or whatever, right? Like I don't understand why- it couldn't be shared in the first place. Like, it just makes no sense. It's the craziest thing ever, you know, where they just, like, you and I were talking about it over text, and, and we talked about, yeah, why didn't they just share it and and just, you know, schedule a time, like, schedule, you know, throughout the whole day, like, Team A has 45 minutes, Team B, you know, 45 minutes, and, and just keep going with your schedule, maybe even two teams at once, a male, female, or two male teams, like, I mean, there's definitely some way to do it, but to have that, like, I could see the gear, like, I know they, they, they tweeted out pictures of the food and the gear, you know, look, like, there is a, a big disparity of, like, as far as the money's concerned, what, what, like, the men bring in versus the women, and if you're going to give a little bit more gear because you got more sponsors, I, I sort of can see that, food maybe, but, like, weight room facilities, all of this... They got to be as close to equal as you can get them. That was just an embarrassment. And they're going to take a, a pounding. And you saw all these NBA players and other athletes like tweeting against it. Now it's just you open up this firestorm of, of shit because Johnny or Jenny Dumpfuck has no idea, you know, haven't looked out their fucking window and see what kind of world we live in the last 15 years and think this is okay. It's I mean, I don't think, you know, I don't know about sexism or whatnot. It's just fucking stupidity. You know, like, you I just can't do that. I, I think it, it was really stupid. I, I think the NCAA, for the most part, look, yeah, they're, they they do give an opportunity to a lot of athletes, but I think they're, um, they're assholes equally to everyone. <laughs> like, I mean, I was I was in college, and it's changed a lot since I was there, but, you know, what frustrated me was that I, I you know, my uh, coach couldn't buy me a fuck. He couldn't buy me lunch. He couldn't buy me a coffee. He couldn't buy me a soda or a drink or a soft drink. You know, there were times where they'd come visit you, and they weren't allowed to work you out, and then you've got the, the two-hour workout window in preseason, so you can only do two hours a week on floor with a coach, and you're like, am I in USSR, or where the hell am I at? Like, what the hell is this shit? Like, if I want to work out, I should have the legal right to go to a coach and be like, I want more extra work, right? Yeah. The NCAA has so many, so many many rules that this was this was essentially going to wrap its tail around to their face and, and bite them in the ass and now you want to put all these rules in and these you want to sanction the schools and now now people are going to be looking at you like you said everyone wants to have a crack at the NCAA but it's like I mean I'm not a huge fan of the way they go about it you know when I was in school it was very hard for a student ath- athlete to complain and say hey like I should be getting paid you're selling my jersey in the bookshop because the NCAA would do a PR blitz 
They'd interview two or three, you know, random students whose parents had to, you know, draw a mortgage on their house to put them through school or the kids working three jobs. So, you get no sympathy as a student athlete back then because most students, they hate the athletes, you know, they get all the good looking girls, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the reason may be. It's starting to turn a little bit now. There's a bit more people starting to realize, well, you, you are taking- you know, you're making some money from guys, and I live that. I, I had to get a job. I had to get a job at a sports bar in college. Um, I was the you know top top five, you know, college all American candidate. Ended up sweeping the rewards, and here I was working in Skybox, which was a sports bar in downtown Salt Lake, my sophomore year, because I didn't have enough money to buy groceries and shit. So. I looked at it as like, man, this is bullshit because I, I go, to, like I said, I go to the bookstore. You've got my jersey selling in the bookstore for a hundred dollars. Like, I don't expect millions of dollars, but I didn't have money to take a girl out, bro. And I think that's where it was some bullshit, you know. And, and then I'm, I'm eating off the dollar menu in Wendy's because I've got three or four dollars at the end of a week or whatever it is, and that's where it really kind of poisoned the experience for me a little bit. I loved it for the most part, but it was about ten percent of that experience. I was like, I feel like I'm being taken for a ride. First of all, forget about the NCAA. Who the fuck? was running that bookstore in Utah selling your fucking jersey for a hundred bucks. Did it come with did it come with the dye kit where you could have the frosted tips or is it just the jersey? Well I don't know. That jersey now is hanging up in the Huntsman Center on the University of Utah campus pro so next time you're in town going Oh uh, here we fuck here we fucking go. Go and bow to that shit. <laughs> here we fucking go. Hey look if if I went up to if I went went up to Majerus a, a day after they fucking retired that thing, I could have got four chili dogs and had that fucking jersey. Maybe. Let's be honest. Maybe. The rest is history though, it'll be there forever. <laughs> hey, respect. Yeah, but I mean look, the NCAA, like I said, um, they're gonna take their lumps and, and, and they deserve it. But you looked into the numbers, so did I. I mean, Title Nine law over there, when it relates to, to college sports, they basically have to have an even number of scholarships for for male and female. So where this gets a little hairy is you look at a football program, I don't know how many roster spots there are in football. I'd be making it up in college football, but I assume 60, 70, 80, 90 scholarships for football. So, that basically then has to be matched by a female sport. Now, there's no female football program. It's usually soccer or something else. So, when you balance this this out, I was around a school where actual sports had to kind of get cancelled essentially or, or, or gone under. Like male soccer, for instance, wasn't around at the University of Utah because they, they couldn't do it because they had to even out the scholarship. So, that's where it gets a little tricky with this this photo that Ali Kirshner has t- tweeted. You know, we, we want equality for women. Um, I, I support women in sport. I think it's fantastic, but there needs to come a point where the numbers do matter and, and the money you're bringing in matters. Um, it doesn't mean you're sexist saying that. It doesn't mean anything other than the fact of most college universities and the money coming in is from men's basketball and men's football. That's just the reality of it. And those two sports generally fund all your other sports, including some male sports, you know, some male sports that people don't support or watch. And the female, uh, you know, female basketball programs, they get a little bit of money from ESPN, but it's it's, it's a drop in the ocean compared to the male. And I think you have some numbers for us. Yeah, I mean- the numbers basically, from what I get gathered, and again, you don't know what you read, if, how accurate, but uh, the contracts for the men's basketball is about 800 million bucks a year. It goes up to about 1.5 billion or so in 2025, maybe 1.2 billion. And with the women's TV deal is thrown in with a bunch of other events like the NIT, some college, um, some other college like tournament games. And that's at about $35 million a year. So it, it does, you know, obviously with, with all this, like, you know, with the di- another differences, Bogues, with the men's side. So how they pay out the con- uh, pay out the money for the NCAA tournament for these teams is basically if you qualify for the tournament, 
you get what's called a unit. Each unit's worth about 200 and actually it's over $300,000 now. It's probably like $320,000. So every time a team from your league not only makes the tournament, but also advances, they get an extra unit. And I think once you get to the final four, it's not units, but they give you like a way bigger chunk. But what they do is they pay it out every six years. So in a six year uh, run, you're, you know, like, I read somewhere like from 2005 to 2011, they paid out $188 million to these schools, uh, that the conferences that makes the tournament with the in, in advances. With the women's, I don't think they have that where they have units where they advance. If, I may be wrong, but that's what I think I read in a couple of publications. So the men's side d- does generate a lot of this money. And what people don't know is most of these schools and most of these schools do lose money. You know, there are a few that make a hell of a lot of money, you know, because of the fact the TV contracts and, you know, the the shares from bowl games and the shares is, from yep. uh, NCAA and stuff. But a lot of these, uh, for when I was reading, a lot of these schools like that, are, like that are the lower end power fives or the power, you know, out of the power five, they're losing upwards of $14 million a year because they got to fund, like you said, they got to fund every other sport. So... When people say things like, well, NCAA players should be paid, the problem comes up with like everybody's going to want to get paid and everybody's going to have to get paid the same because there'll be lawsuits if you don't. And that's where you run into a lot of problems, you know, and like like for a bowl game, for instance, if you make a million dollars in the bowl game, you know, for, for Utah going to a bowl game, they have to pay all their expenses for their hotel, for their food, flying out uh, everybody to the game, chartering uh, any any guest of theirs, and then they take that out out, out of their million, and then whatever's left, say there's like eight hundred thousand dollars left, they throw it into the pot with the rest of the conference of whoever else made bowl games, and then they split all that money up equally, and then whatever you get for your share, is, then you have to sort of divide it up within your sports teams. And that's where, you know, people don't understand. They make money. There's a lot of money, especially at the top schools like Texas, Kentucky and things. But, you know, a lot of these schools have to fund all these other sports scholarships and, you know, travel expenses and coaches, you know, coaches salaries and all this other stuff. So, you know, that's where I have an issue with when people start talking about paying athletes because they're really, you know, because since you got to fund everybody, and then if you throw on these schools of losing 14 million, then you got to pay the school, pay the players. That's going to be a little tough. Yeah, it is. And I, th- I think what prostrates me now with the, the, the photo that Ali, Ali Kirshner tweeted out is now you have female athletes in general in the professional level um, saying, you know, this is what we deal with every day. Look, I think college sports, it's very easy or, or easier to create great equalization between men and women. Title IX is a prime example, equal number of scholarships. Looking at it from the outside in, you're like, yeah, that makes sense. Cool, let's go. But obviously, there can be issues either way. But when you move on to like WNBA players, you know, there's been arguments previously the last couple of years about, you know, why why am I not getting paid? I can't remember who it was. It was someone from from the Dallas um, franchise. Texas, yeah, the, the Dallas Stars or something, uh, the yeah, Wings. Yeah, right. the Wings. And they said, Harrison Barnes is making $85 million, and why aren't I? And you, you, you think like, okay, 
you're, you're funded by the NBA. Um, and that's the, that's the harshness of when you start to look into the financials of the WNBA. We want to support women in sport. We want them to do well. But let's call a spade a spade. The WNBA has, has never made money. And uh, I'm not sure if it ever, ever will. Who knows? That's a, that's a question for somebody else. But I know for a fact that the NBA, the NBA Players Association and the NBA players pay dues to fund the WNBA. So that's where it becomes a little tricky if you want equality and, and you want now, okay, I, I should be making the same as Harrison Barnes or even 10%. We need to look at the profit and loss statement of the WNBA and see, well, can we, can we afford that without the league going bankrupt? Can we afford, can clubs afford that without franchises? going under and that's where this political issue of gender equality can can really kind of hurt women's sports in my opinion because you can basically you know drain all your resources and, and be in massive debt say you get a new commissioner of the nba you get a new owner of an nba team that's like hey what's this massive expense here i'm paying i don't want to pay that anymore you know shit, shit's gonna hit the fan so that's where um there's a big difference when people jump from college or what we what we saw there to, to, to pro sports because there's a lot that goes into it and at the end of the day it's like any business it's it's what you're bringing in is what your players or your employees are going to get compensated or paid and unfortunately the WNBA, just using that as an example because i know basketball um is not making a whole lot of money and a whole lot of profit and i'd, I'd probably even go as far as saying, I don't think they're making much of a profit. Um, I could be wrong, but I don't think they are. Yeah. I mean, I remember visiting Indiana eight years ago and I went down there and, and to Bloomington and they had like mirror practice facilities. You know, Indiana men, I don't know how the women's done in the last 20 or 30 years, but the men, you know, when Coach Knight was there, Bobby Knight was there, they were one of the best, you know, programs of all time. And they had this multi-million dollar NBA-like practice facility, but they mirrored it and door to next door, like like five feet apart from each other. And it was just mirror. They had to do everything equal. And like, look, if you could get close to equal and that's fine, you, you, you definitely don't want it to be like way high, way low. But things like the WNBA, you got to understand if it's not making money. Um, if the NBA is behind it, they obviously have to have something where it's a decent wage. You know, you can't have like poverty, you know, you're paying somebody like eight grand or 10 grand at the end of your bench to play. It has to be upwards of standard, but you have to look at the books and who's producing and who's not. And you can't, I mean, it's already losing money and the NBA and the NBA Players Association has to give money to fund it. Like it's a real... It's really tough. I mean, if you're running a business to be like, we're going to pay the women like we pay the men. Like, I think you should be able to get them good places to stay on the road, good travel, good coaching, medical, medical treatment, insurance, a decent wage, you know, where it's pretty good, you know, to play. But the women, you know, most of the women that make most of their money, they're going to make most of their money overseas. You know, unlike the men where it's flip-flopped, where they could only they only have to play in the NBA, where, where the WNBA players, I would say 80 to 90% of them play overseas uh, throughout the wintertime, you know, in their offseason. So, it's a little bit strange. But at the end of the day, it's, it's who's producing financially. I don't understand why there's no – because the women have a decent following in college, especially the bigger programs like a UConn, Notre Dame, Tennessee. Tennessee. Yeah, big um, time. Yeah, but like they just it doesn't carry over to the pro game and I don't know why, but if they hey look, like if I'm on a campus and my women say UConn after Jim Calhoun left and after they won their last national championship, they went in a little bit of a funk for a few years. The women always produce and they always bring in money and they're always, you know, one of the best teams in college basketball. 
I would give the women in, in those situations more than the men. They're the ones that's producing, they're winning, they're bringing in money. But like, sometimes you got to take care of the people that a little bit more than the ones that are producing. It's just, it's just, that's how it is in life across the board, you know, where like, that's just, that's just sort of how it is, especially if you look at the financials on all these things, you know, but look, if they, if they start producing and they start making more money, then we can go to the table. But until that happens, it's really hard to say, well, you know, you need to get more than the men get, or even like you know, more than the men are up to, you know, being close like that. It's a tough, it's a tough argument. It is. And uh, I guess my one solution pro is, is if, if this is, you know, when it becomes this political, there's a big push for, you know, gender diversity and, and all that and equality and all that kind of stuff. I get it. Like I, I, I support, I think playing sport, especially for young girls is, is very, very important for, for all kids. I think male and female, I think it's um, an integral part of, of your upbringing because I think sport translates to anything else you're going to do in life, winning, losing, teammates, working with people, like the list goes on, right? But it just seems like when these political conversations come up about pay disparity, you know, men should, men and women should be paid equally. You know, I think that all the tennis majors now, I think the prize money now is equal at all the major tennis um, opens, but you know, the women play three sets, the men play five. So that's, that's not technically equal by equality standards, right? So I guess my only answer, if this continues to be a, a toxic debate is no more NBA, no more WNBA. There's just the, the, the NBA, um, and the best play. I mean, if, if that, 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 you know what I'm saying? Like it's, and that's just silly because you're going to erode female sports then. Um, there's, there's no doubt that the male sports are the more dominant. If you played a, a male team versus a female team, that would be the result. And, and that's, I guess, offense, offensive to say these days, but it's, it's, it is, the fact of the matter and the reality, but I just don't know where we're going with it all because, like I said, you can't pay um, a women's league the same as a man's league if it's not bringing in that income. You just you're going to end up doing a disservice because the league's going to bloody go under, and then you're not going to have that sport. Folks, if you're Nike, right, and you're making all this money at Nike, and you have say say you have thirty pres- uh, vice presidents in your organization at Nike, and you say you've got fifteen bo- men, fifteen women, well, the women should get paid just as much as the men do because you're making all this money, you're in business, everything else is fair because it's one business and everybody's making the money. Agreed. If you're an NBA team and you have female assistants, the female assistants should be making just as much as the men do. Right. Yep. And that's fine. But now if you get an entity that's not making money and it's it, you have to reach in your pocket, you know, and then you have another entity that's making six billion dollars a year in the BRI, then it's not even close what you should be paying the men versus the women. It just may. I mean, it's just financial sense. But if you got it, you know, in life, in real life, I think men and women should have equal opportunity. But in situations like this, where you have two separate entities in a sense, and one's making this big amount of money and one is in the, you know, it's in the red every year, then th- it doesn't make any sense. It's not fiscally, you know, fiscally possible. You know, I don't think Enron's accountants could actually get that thing done. Yeah. And what people forget is the NBA wasn't always the NBA. I think, you know, when the NBA first started, even throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, players were, were staying in shitty hotels. They, were, they weren't getting a pet AM. They were getting basically, you know, one, ba- one kind of little food tray for their team meals. They were, you know, trains and buses and, and, and commercial flights. Um, it took them 
decades to get to where it is today. So, with a lot of the the women's sport, say the WNBA, they've been around what now two decades, late nineties, I believe it was about ninety six. I think yeah, it started. yeah, yeah but it's, it's going to take t- it's going to take time. Like it can't you can't have what the men have after they ate the shit sandwich for thirty or forty years. That's the other reality of it. It takes time to build your following. So for like WNBA, you got to build that following up year by year and get in the community and do different things and then spiral that all into hopefully one day getting eighteen thousand people paying paying top dollar to watch you play and then you then you'll get those salaries. But I feel like you know, and that's a testament to society today, not just with sports, but people want everything now. I want it today because they have it, but it just doesn't work like that. And a lot of people forget that, you know, the, the NBA, you know, wasn't always this league that paid, you know, top dollar. It was it was once a league that was, you know, paying a decent salary, but players still had to suck it up, you know? Yeah. Anyhow, we'll move on from that. One one last thing with that, our man Swaggy P, Nick Young, <laughs> got in a little bit of a little bit of trouble. He posted uh, an, on an ESPN Instagram post of all places, so a lot of people saw it. He posted, "Man, you're not bringing in the big bucks, y'all, the JV team, which would be junior varsity team, and it's cool." That's what he that's what he wrote. Inappropriate, appropriate. That's up for debate, but. He his follow up to it is what made me laugh. So got a lot of backlash, obviously called sexist, misogynist. You know, disparaging with female sports and all that kind of stuff. And he um, then followed up with a tweet about an hour later. Dang, who hacked me like that? I love women, and I would never. All the women I love. We're gonna find this hacker going around. <laughs> so, so there's a hacker that's just uh, targeting Nick Swaggy Young to put tweets out about uh, about college equality in sports. Folks, first of all, come on, man. I. I mean, first of all, him getting hacked like that and we got to find the hacker. It's a lot like fucking OJ saying, I got to find my wife's killer. Here's how you find the hacker and the killer. Just get a fucking mirror and look at it because that's the fucking guy. Come on. <laughs> give me a fucking break. Like, oh, just you know, fu- I bet so his funny. agent called him. <laughs> so funny. Yeah, his agent probably texted him like eight seconds later because he still wants that 10% of his $18,000 a year and plus free upgrade from Boost Mobile. So he said, now nah, we got to fucking keep what we got. You know, that's that, cause that's the only thing that I get sponsored for you these days. There's no fuck. I mean, it's just a fucking stupid thing to say. I mean, you know, it's a stupid, and there's no way. I love that. MB, I love that pro athlete deal of fucking getting hacked. I want to know the Russian hacker right now that's fucking targeting fucking Nick Young's phone. Exactly. I mean, but just the last line, man, we, we, we got to find this hacker. <laughs> <laughs> I love that fucking hacker uh, thing. That's oh, man. Great. I was rolling on the floor laughing because I was like, sort of on hoop side and I'm like, I put this in the chat. But anyhow, I'll move on from that. Get back to the, what do you got? No, I'm saying like Chloe from 24 is fucking hacking into his phone. Give me a fucking break. Give me, come on. It could have been Gilbert Arenas though. They have some pretty good back and forth from what I've heard. It's <laughs> a good point. Respect. <laughs> uh, back to the NBA. Brad Stevens, uh, we texted back and forth. You confused me a little bit because I thought you meant he was up for the Pacers job and I was like, how is that going to work t- leaving <laughs> leaving Boston mid, uh, you know, mid-season? But Brad Stevens was apparently uh, reportedly offered the University of Indiana coaching job, a prestigious job, obviously. He was around the area previously in college, so he'd know how important that that job is to to the people of that city, and you'd basically be a, you know, you'd be the um, the rock star of the town forever for life if you went and coached that team. If you were Brad Stevens, but he turned it down. Um, the Celtics are looking; they're not looking good. <laughs> we, we brought it up probably three podcasts ago, three weeks ago, and then they kind of turned the corner a little bit. But it just looks oh my fault. It, it, it that's looks Brad Stevens. That's Brad Stevens's lawyer talking lawsuit. But go ahead. Is he? Because they don't look good. 
No, that, that's who just called me right now. Brad <laughs> Stevens is a lawyer fucking talking lawsuit. So don't worry about it. We didn't say anything bad. You just turned down the job offer and the Celtics look like shit at the moment. Not factual. Good point. What's the fix for the Celtics? What right now? What do you, what, I mean, is it? I mean, you you sent me a screenshot of their bench, which uh, was was kind of alarming once you saw that on paper. Yeah, Bugs. Like, first of all, with the job thing, we'll talk about the job real quick. Like, yeah, that Indiana. You know, they haven't had much success in their program since Knight left. You know, Tom Crean t- sort of took them a little bit, but. You know, he's an Indiana guy. Obviously, he's a legend in Indiana coaching circles, and they needed somebody who's going to be their savior. So they probably wanted him. And in my opinion, he probably thought about it. Um, I don't think he was trying to run away from Boston or anything, but he had to have thought about it. I mean, being from Indiana and growing up in that area and, you know, you know somebody co- like that comes calling for you. It's probably something you sort of dreamed about your whole life, but you know, it is what it is. He said no. Boston itself as a team, it's it's weird, folks, like because like starting five wise, they're not bad. They got they got two, you know, they got one player who's probably, you know, the top ten, top twelve player in the league in Jason Tatum. Jalen Brown's probably somewhere in the top thirty, you know, in the league. You know, they've got Marcus Smart who guards people, they've got Kemba Walker who's coming off a knee. Now it was an interesting stat about two weeks ago, up to about two weeks ago. Um, how many times do you think all those five guys, uh, those four guys, Walker, Smart, Brown, and Tatum played together in, in the same game? This season? The, at the same time. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be what? Yeah. Two? How many? Two? I don't know. Yeah, it was two. It was two times. So, guess. yeah, hey, yeah, great guess. Go to Vegas with that one, brother. But... <laughs> You you blame a little bit on the COVID thing, Marcus Smart being hurt with the calf, Kemba Walker, you know, having some decent pro- having problems with the knees. But my thing is defensively when you look at those guys, and especially Tatum and Brown, Brown does a pretty good job defensively. Smart's one of the best defenders in the league. Walker's really not going to guard anybody, but he's going to try. But Tatum, it really starts with him because he's their best player. You know, and he needs to, in my opinion – really be locked in on the defensive side. And I know you and I talk about it all the time. You talk about it, about how defense isn't a priority. And I get that in the league. But I think when I watched the Cleveland game the other night, when Cleveland just scored on them time and time again, and no one's getting pissed, no one's getting mad, you know, and then you could you could definitely blame the bench. There's not one guy on that bench that can make a play. That I could really take over a game. No Lou Williams, no Jamal Crawford, you know, nobody like that. No Dennis Schroeder from a year or two ago. Like, there's nobody on the off the bench that could really get you 18 to 20 and really rev things up when you take the starting five out. So, you know, they're they're young guys besides Robert Williams, who's been playing pretty well. Really, you know, Peyton Pritchard's okay, but he's not really gonna make a play. So I think. I don't think you like like I told you a couple of weeks ago. I don't think you should like panic, panic. But those guys got to look themselves in the mirror defensively and say, "Look, we got to be locked in." And I mean, those three guys alone, plus with Tristan Thompson or Daniel Thice playing at center, like with Smart Brown and Tatum. I mean, they could switch anybody. They're long, athletic, strong. I mean, they definitely can do it if they wanted to. But you know, great teams, as you know. Fucking, you know, you don't just like talk about playing defense and talking about your coverages and stuff. You man the fuck up. You for 48 minutes, you man the fuck up and you say they're not coming through us. And if my man, if someone's man gets beat, I'm going to be there to help. 
and it, we got to be fucking flying out at guys and we got to have energy. But they're not going to beat anybody in that fucking Eastern Conference at the, at the top. They're not going to beat, um, you know, uh, Philly, Brooklyn, Miami, you know, um, Milwaukee if they don't have that mentality coming in because their bench ain't helping them. They need to do it as, as a starting five in off the bench. They got to see that defensive intensity pick up or it's just going to be a, a, de- a disappointing, you know, six, seven, eight finish throughout the year. Yeah, I mean, I, besides Marcus Smart, there's no one that intimidates me on that roster defensively. I mean, Jalen Brown's solid, um, but other than, I mean, Thice is solid. They've got a few solid guys, but they just don't, especially in the paint, they don't have anyone that really intimidates coming into that paint. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a tough one. Look, if I was Boston just doing some quick research right now to address your second unit scoring woes, I would, I would make a call on Terrence Ross or Norman Powell. They're two guys that I would make a call on for my bench. They're both on, on teams that, you know, aren't gonna uh, probably aren't gonna make the playoffs, so you might get them for a fire sale for a pick, or they might shed salary. But they they need to do something, like you said, a Lou Williams type. They need to get someone that's off the bench. They're two guys, Terence Ross and Norman Powell, that they come off the bench, jacking and could give you a quick twenty. But they they need to shore up that bench if they if they've got any aspirations to get you know at least to the second third round of the playoffs. That that roster's not doing it, in my opinion. Yeah, and here's the thing, like trades right if you talk about their roster first of all nobody wants anything off your bench except maybe robert williams robert williams is i mean if he brings it together and it seems like he was immature when he got into the league but he is a terror when it comes to blocking shots you know rebounding athletic you know he's not really an offensively skilled player but i mean he when he wants to bring it and he and he's been putting up some good games he could bring it so why is he not not playing on a consistent basis then Oh no, he's playing. He he's actually played the last eight or ten games. He's actually played. I, I don't know the uh, the Just numbers right in front off, of right? me. Yep. No, he's not starting, but he comes off the bench. But even start but of the like, season, here's th- he's, he's really just gotten to the rotation probably properly. The yes. last, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he hasn't been reliable up to about this, you know, late last year into this year. But here's the thing, Bogues. Like you got Tatum, right, who's a top. You know, I got him at twelve in the league in my rankings. Like. I mean, you got the top 12 guys, so why would you want to trade him? Because what are you going to get back? You're not going to get a Jason Tatum back. You got one of the young, you know, you got a young player who's one of the, you know, top players in the league. You keep him. Jalen Brown in a trade. Again, what are you going to get? Like, he's like the third, you know, top 30 player. Nobody's really giving you anything of a lot of value. You might get picks. You'll get players, but I don't think you're going to get, again, Jalen Brown. You know, he's he's like under he's I think he's like 24, 25 years old. You know, if that like you're not going to trade him because like you're not going to get that back. I mean, you get T these two guys. You're not going to trade Marcus Smart because he's like your backbone of your team. You could trade Kemba Walker, but he's got a lot of salary left. You know, he's got a lottery salary left. He He's injury. You know, he's had some injury history. And I don't again, I don't know if what you're going to get back is going to be necessarily a way better option than Kemba. I think you stand put, you try to make some moves if you can. They get that big trade exception uh, that they, they they got this uh this offseason. Have they got picks? You know they talk they got picks. They don't have a boatload. They, I think they only have like their own. Like all those like picks that they've gotten in the last few years, I think of most of them used up. Yeah. They talk the talk in Boston is they're gonna try to trade for Harrison Bonds with picks 
and their trade exception. And now if they bring in Harrison Barnes, that's a different story now. You get one of the most professional basketball players that I've ever been around who can, you know, who could shoot, who could score. Uh, he gives you credibility as far as defensively, good pro, and he'll definitely, he'll definitely improve your team. And now he could probably take you to another level, you know, if you can get a guy like that. Now, I don't know if Sacramento wants to give them up because they've got their own issues. Now, they might just want to be in fire sale and, and try to, you know, take off salary because, you know, Harrison does make a lot of money. But they might be asking for a little bit too much with picks and things. But I think it's going to be for the trade exception and, a, you know, and, and, and multiple picks of what I'm hearing. Yeah, I just, I just don't think Kemba fits in with that group. When you've got Tatum and Brown already, who are great scorers in their own right, um, having a score-first point guard, I don't know. I, I'd even like them to, you know, look at – we know we'll talk about it later, Lonzo Ball's on the table. Someone like that, a pass-first guy with those two guys on your wings and then you fit in, another, you know, Harrison Barnes or someone down the line. Shit, you've, you've got a roster then, you know. I just don't think – I don't know. I don't like that. Their big three in Boston doesn't work for me. It just doesn't, doesn't pass the smell test, I don't think. Yeah, Tatum's a talented kid, seems like, but he, I mean, he's so talented. But to me, like, I like watching Brown better because he's more like, battles. Yeah. you know, he, he, yeah, he's just like, he's simple, straight line drives. He'll, he'll pull up, you know, pull up jump shots, get into the basket, plays defense. You know, he tries. He's not as talented as Tatum because Tatum at the end of games could finish games for you. But like Brown... You know, Brown's easier on the eyes for me as far as a basketball purist, like, wants to see just good basketball. You know, Tatum's got that cha-cha-cha, you know, step back, you know, sidestep, step back deal with five, you know, with five hands in his face. Like, it seems, and we talk about it, and it's nothing against Tatum. He's a talented kid, but, like, he just seems like he does everything difficult. He does everything difficult. He wants to do all the fancy stuff Kobe does but he doesn't want to do the simple stuff that Kobe does because he emulates Kobe as he plays. And I think he's got to, like I said, pick it up on the defensive end and play more simple. Yeah, and they might want to make a move, but, you know, to me, if they stand put, they they spend their, you know, maybe they trade some of their younger guys. Maybe they spend some. Their, the problem, too, is they just, you know, Brown's extension kicks in. Tatum's already got his extension. Kemba's over $30 million. Smarts, you know, makes a decent wage. They're up at upwards of about $130 million in salary. So they're going to start getting into the tax. They got to probably use their mid-level exception, their taxpayer exception, and try to, you know, try to get somebody off the bench if they don't make a move at trade deadline. That's going to be – that trade exception, you know, is a little bit overrated because, you know, not a lot of people use it to get anything really. You know, basically a trade exception is when you use your cap room – to absorb a player. So say Andrew Bogut makes 10 million. I'm 20 million under the cap. You know, the Golden State Warriors trade me, Andrew Bogut. I don't have to trade anything back. I think I have to trade you like a, a player I have rights to, a European kid or whatever, but I basically don't trade you anything money-wise, you know, coming back. I just absorb your 10 million and then I get a I get a $10 million um you get a $10 million trade exception. So yep. then you could basically, even if you're over the cap, now I can go out and get a player. If Terrence Ross makes $10 million a year and I'm over the cap, I could basically trade for Terrence Ross and only give up that trade exception. Absorb that money. And yeah, then yeah. I can get the, yep. yeah, and use the money. So it's basically free money. But a, a lot of times it's not really used. And it usually, it, I think they give you a year to use it and it usually expires. So 
they got a lot of soul searching to do, man. Like, you know, I always say the NBA season doesn't start until you have a players only meeting, you know, <laughs> and, um, you know, I hate those fucking bullshit fucking player meetings because nothing gets They're done. No one really says anything real. Oh. You know, everybody just like, you know, it's all passive aggressive bullshit for the most part. Like, you just got to be real and say, look, we got to step at the fuck up. Everybody, we got to step at the fuck up. And this is what we got to do. But it's always like, oh, man, we just got to do it. You know, this and that. Like, there's nothing ever done in those fucking meetings, in my opinion. You know, nothing well, everyone's really scared. Gets, Everyone's you know, scared to call each other out. Like, you're scared to call your boy out that's playing bad or you're scared to call out someone else because then someone will go back at you. So, it ends up just being a, a merry-go-round of bullshit and then it lasts an hour and nothing gets accomplished and then you got practice anyway. So, but yeah, we'll keep an eye out on Boston. They're 20 and 21 um, as we speak. They're, they're sitting in eighth place. They're still in the mix in the East, but that, that is, yeah, it just doesn't look good in my opinion. But onto a positive note, the Atlanta Hawks. Eight game winning streaks since firing their coach. They they just beat the Lakers this morning. LeBron hurt his ankle, and we assume we'll end up in South Beach in the next couple of days. But Atlanta, um, they're balling, man. I mean, have you caught any of the games? From what I've seen, a s- small sample size, it seems like the ball's moving a whole lot more. I saw a couple of plays where they they swung that thing two or three times, short roll for a lob, like lob dunk. Like they they did a lot of things that that were just beautiful to watch. That weren't just Trey Young dribbling the air out of the basketball. And and I think they're battling more defensively. They're not a talented defensive team by any means, but there, there seems to be a bit more of a commitment. And I'd put that on Nate McMillan. He's a hard-nosed coach, doesn't take bullshit. But it's been nice to see them win some games. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, and again, like what we talked about, um, the firing, you know, you know, firing of Lloyd Pierce, it's like, you know, a lot of time, a lot of the guys were hurt. You know, there, there was definitely some immaturity by Trey Young, Probably some things that he did as a, a still a you know an up and coming coach where you know he doesn't really have that experience yet. But I think when you make a change, you know Nate McMillan is you know he's a prick. You know he's he's big on defense. He's not you know he he's he's big on defense and he's going to hold guys you know he'll hold guys accountable. And he's not afraid because especially like if he's not been, he hasn't been given the job, so he doesn't really care. He'll get a job if it's in Atlanta or somewhere else. So he'll just be like, you know, and plus when a coach gets, you know, gets fired, you know how it is, especially in the first week or two weeks, guys are going to be sort of changed. They're going to play different. They're going to play with energy for one reason or another. I have no idea why, but when a coach gets, he gets fired, you know, it's usually like you could almost count that team's going to win their next game. But, like, I think they're playing better, you know, defensively. Like you said, the ball's moving. They got their guys back. You know, Gallinari's back. Bogdanovich is back. They haven't got DeAndre Hunter back yet. And plus, when a lot of this shit gets aired out, especially, like, with Lloyd Pierce having a problem with Trey Young, not being tough, not wanting to be held accountable, you know how those players are going to be. They're going to make a, make a, like, probably a concerted effort to probably be a little bit more coachable, especially because they don't want to be, they want to always put it on the coach who got fired. They don't want to put it on themselves. So they're going to be like Eddie Haskell, basically a fictitious character, character in the, you know, um, and a TV character of basically a guy who was full of shit, you know, is basically like, Oh, how you doing, Mrs. Cleaver? But the kid's a little rat behind their back. That's what they're going to be like that. You know, that Trey Young's probably not going to show that he dribbles out the ball. Like he'll, he'll make more conservative efforts to pass and make plays and things. And I still think that they were, they were sort of turning a corner right when they fired Pierce, 
especially with their guys coming back. I thought they were playing a little bit better, but this is great. Eight games that they won, they're playing better. And, you know, it seems like they're a little bit more fired up and, you know, ready to go. It's been fun to watch. I like seeing teams that turn it around mid-season and then they bounce back from previous season. But they, um, if they get all their veterans healthy, their bench isn't bad. I think they have a good balance. And I think they'll be, you know, if they keep playing this way, somewhere between four and eight in the East will be a good a good result for them and building on, on the following year, adding some more pieces around Trey. And they could um, start to build something special out there. Did you catch the um, LeVar Ball comments? He's been back in the media again. He, um, <laughs> he- Oh, boy. Yeah, these are the comments regarding Alonzo Ball. I don't know what they're going to do, but I hope he gets traded. I don't like watching him play. I don't like how he plays. He can't stand New Orleans. Come on, man. That was when he was asked about Alonzo Ball and the NBA trade deadline. And this this goes further than just – the reason why I brought this up, it goes further than just Alonzo Ball and the NBA. I mean, there's parents like this in junior sports. There's parents like this in college. I had a teammate at the University of Utah, and whenever his son wouldn't – He'd play, he averaged about 20, 25 minutes. And if he didn't get 30 minutes or he didn't get touches or, or did, had a bad game, the coach, the coach would either email or call, sorry, the, the parent would either call or email our coach um, and basically abuse him. <laughs> so um, I still remember that because our coach was trying to manage it politically and, and not, not you know, because we knew we needed this kid to, to go anywhere in the tournament. But at the same time, it was like whenever he had a bad game, it was the coach's fault. And I feel like, uh, I feel like we know, we know Lavar is, he loves attention, loves clickbait stuff, but I think he's hurting his kids more than he's helping them at this point. You know, it's just, it's just, you know, Lonzo's in a decent situation where he's at least going to play. He's going to be that starting point guard. Um, he would go somewhere even worse, you know. And uh, how do you how do you see all that? I mean, have you have you? Had, I doubt you would have had to deal with any parents too much. I mean, maybe with some of your, your kids that were entering the draft, but it just yeah, it's just not a not a good thing, is it? No, it's not. It starts with like back in the day, parents like this that would complain if their kid wasn't playing. They go to the AD, they complain. Basically, the the AD would tell the, the parent to fuck off, you know, and the coach is going to make their own decision to how they make the team or play and who's going to play or whatnot. And now these, you know, these high, these ADs, because of the world we live in, they fold, they usually fire the coach or they get the coach replaced or reprimanded. And these parents are allowed to run wild. The problem is you don't, ex- you expect that in high school. You semi expect that in college to a certain degree. But in the NBA, it's the fucking pro league. Like, come on, give me a break. I've never seen like, it. There were players. He's the only guy I've ever seen. He's the only one, right? I've never seen parents like him in professional sports. Not, not like him. Not like him. I wish, I wish Zuckerberg and Twitter would, you know, give him the Trump treatment and just fucking take him off and, and, and silence him <laughs> and, and just fucking suppress him because it just, it doesn't do his son any good. Look, you know, I mean, the stuff that he's done, like, his third brother, like the the older one that was at, or maybe the middle one, maybe the older one, they had another one at UCLA yeah, that wasn't one, very yeah. good. Yeah, he was an average player. Would have had a great time at fucking UCLA. You've been at UCLA's campus. It's fucking ridiculous. Yeah. Like, he takes him out of that league, you know, takes him out of that team to put him in that league, that um, underclassman league that he, he played in. And he basically gave up his eligibility to play in a rec league. Then he you know, sends him to Lithuania, you know, stuff like that. Like, oh, man. you know, I mean, look, you get the, the Kardashians that have no talent and they get billions and I get it. Like, but like, this isn't the Kardashians. There's not that much money to be made with this. And Lonzo Ball, hey, he's one of the more natural passers that I've ever seen. But teammates that played with him in the past, like in LA and 
said that he's like, you know, not a bad kid, but just not really dedicated to it. Like likes the NBA lifestyle, likes playing, but not one guy that like, you know, does extra work and this and that. He seems like he's turning the corner a little bit in New Orleans. He's sort of making an identity for himself. Why just put the kid on blast like that and, you know, with his teammates and now he's saying he doesn't like New Orleans anyway. You know, it's just, it's, it's not fucking good business for the kid. The kid's actually coming out of his own. Like, I, I don't think they picked up his option. So I think he could be a free agent in the summer. Like, you know, he hasn't had much of an NBA career. He's averaging 14 and five this year. Not bad, but he has, it's not like he's like Jason Kidd like already. You know, he's had a, he's had an average, you know, a little bit of above average NBA career so far. And he's sort of, he's still trying to figure it out. I don't know why the guy's going to blow the guy up like that. You know, well, and, and I know like Paul's. Yeah. That's my point. Up? That's my point. Like, it's like he's finally yeah. getting some consistencies, fixed his three ball. He seems to be playing well individually, the team's up and down, but he's starting to find his feet a little bit. He's getting consistent. And then bang, his dad comes out and says some shit like this. It's just like, why? I, I don't know. And the dad's like not a bad guy. I've seen some evil fucking parents in my days. I've been doing this since I was 18 years old. Believe me, I've seen some evil fucking parents. He's just like. You know, he don't he don't know when to shut up. He just fucking he just says what he says. He's like one of those guys who talk shit at a barbershop, but like the barbershop is the whole fucking world he's talking to. And people <laughs> give him a voice and it just it's gonna hurt the kid, you know. Like it seems like the the youngest like doesn't give a fuck. Nah, like he doesn't he's reckless, he, doesn't, no, he sh- doesn't let up, any of that yeah. shit bother him. He just ball he just does his thing. But yeah, it's just gonna hurt the kid at the end of the day, you know. And I think everybody knows the dad's fucking nuts. You know, and I think that, I mean, on paper, it probably looks like the, you know, his teammates could like have some animosity, but you know, if anybody knows the dad, you'll be like, ah, eh, come on, you know, how, you know, he, he can't fucking help this shit, you know? Yeah. But like you said, the problem is he's got a voice. His voice is probably bigger than his son's, you know? And when he says stupid shit like this, um, especially when his son's finally, you know, starting to play some decent basketball it's like man like you just yeah i don't don't like it um it goes back to you know you talk about junior sports and and how you know kids and that can deal with parents that are like that i mean i dealt with it we we had you know there were there were um i've I've mentioned it before on the my journey pods there were you know when i was 14 15 16 you know um my parents couldn't come to a lot of the training sessions so i'd get dropped off picked up or whatever and there were some parents that would sit there all day and they would bake the coach cookies and cakes and all that bullshit and you know, all of a sudden, the kid's playing a little bit more and the coach is dating, you know, one of his players' sister. It's just like, man, like, you know, and that, that's just the reality of what you deal with. And it goes back to the NCAA too. It's just like, you know, there's 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 certain clubs and there's certain people that like each other and favor each other. And it's not necessarily, you know, gender-related or race-related. It's just people are, you know, human beings are assholes, right? So, you got to kind of navigate that. And, and for the people listening that, that are probably dealing with that right now at a junior sport level where you're, you're that parent that just shuts up and doesn't say anything and you see other parents getting engaged with that, it's hard. But I guess you just got to kind of put all your faith in, in yeah. that coach. You can. I would advise, you know, if you're struggling with it or it's an issue is to pull a coach aside and have a chat. Um, not often. You know, some parents that think they can do it on a weekly basis, like once or twice a season and he's more than okay hey what can my son or daughter do to play more i notice you know he's not playing as much as or she's playing as much as they used to or you take him out when this happens have a balanced discussion but if you go in there guns are blazing um yelling and screaming that my son's the best or my daughter's the best you're not going to get anything accomplished so um, i've seen it at both ends and usually the calm the calm ones win that battle yeah and you're embarrassing your kid and and 
a lot of times these parents want it more than the kids do and they're living their life through them and the kids get embarrassed they they end up growing up with some mental issues as far as dealing with things plus like you're not always going to be there for them to bail them out of things and they're going to have to battle adversity without you and plus like these coaches aren't fucking throwing games. If they think that your kid could really help them, I don't know many coaches that are going to sit somebody on the bench and not want to win fucking games. Like, you know, you just got to chill out. Like Bogue said, talk to them a couple of times a year, maybe, you know, but those parents never do good for their kids if they're always like micromanaging the coach and, and trying to wreak havoc on the, you know, on the coach based on, your kid not scoring as many points that you want them to score or playing as much as you want them to play. It just sets bad precedent. You know, the kid, you know, I've seen a lot of kids just quit the sport. They, they grow up with, like, like I said, social issues because they're used to you, you know, used to you like getting involved like that. And I just, you know, it's one thing like paying for training sessions and like getting your kid to try to get more dedicated, you know, and, and trying to, you know, give the best for your kid. It's a different thing when you're interfering and you're, you know, you're setting your kid up for failure because of the teammates see that, you know, other parents see that, the coach sees that, and you're just going to be that, you know, tough to deal with. And, you know, I just think it's a, it's a bad precedent to set for sure. Yeah, it's it's something that every parent's got to deal with. Um, I would put one caveat in there that I wouldn't be – my recommendation of talking to the coach every now and then is more for junior sports and high school max. I wouldn't do it at the college level and I wouldn't do it at the pro level. The, the issue you have is, especially as a parent, you you know, every parent thinks their kid is the best, that that you want the best for your child. So you're you're a little bit kind of sheltered in the way of thinking because you want the best for your child. But you might not know their practice habits in college. You might not know, you know, is he showing up early? Is he staying late? Is he putting he's he's more talented than this other kid over here, but that other kid spent 15 hours a week more in the gym than him. So as a parent, you got to realize like there's a lot more that goes into coaches' decisions sometimes too that just on, based on talent. Maybe, maybe your, your son or daughter is fantastic individually one-on-one, can score on anyone but can't remember a fucking play, you know? So that's what a parent doesn't realize. Unless you're there at every one of your child's training sessions and games to pick these habits up and see them for yourself, you're kind of going in gung-ho to a coach's meeting. And most, most smart coaches will <laughs> have all that written down. These days, probably even show you video um look at his practice habits look how look at what time he shows up compared to the other kid whatever it is and then that can give you the answer that you want that you're not going to want to hear so there's a lot that goes into it but yeah i mean having a having a side chat isn't the worst thing but the lavar lavar ball school of thought uh, not ideal for your child but let's move on put you under pressure right now before i even go through the numbers who's your rookie of the year right now to edwards and ball right now i'm gonna have to say ball i know edwards is coming on strong and you know I might have to change my answer at some point. But right now, I think Ball's been the consistent, you know, he's been the more consistent player throughout um, throughout the season. St- started coming off the bench, you know, and started coming off the bench and they, they, they finally started to start him. And he's been, you know, he's been very good. You know, he's been very good leading that team. They're winning games. You know, right now they're currently like sixth in the East. They're third in their division. Um, where Minnesota hasn't been winning games. He's had more effect on their winning. Uh, you know, they, he does have Gordon Haywood uh, to, and Terry Rogier to play with, but Edwards also has Towns and, and Russell, even though Towns has been hurt, you know, and he's got Beasley. So I think he's had a little bit, a lot more impact on their winning. 
And I think right now, LaMelo Ball is the, the rookie of the year. What about you? Yeah, I would agree. Um, just because of what you said about win shares, his win shares are way higher. Edwards is on a, on a shitty team. He what the fuck is a win share, by the way, Boggs? I'm not going to break down the analytics of it, but uh, there's a, there's a an analytics uh, an analytical. It's argument. like a statistic. I know Basketball Reference does it. it basically, it's essentially a, a more advanced plus minus. So your effect on the court and, and the positive the positives that happen when you're on the court that equate towards a win. So I, I couldn't tell you the formula of it, um, but. Oh, you know who you know who puts it out? The fucking hacker that gets fucking Swaggy P's fucking phone. <laughs> yeah, That's who puts out a win share of money. Probably. But here's the here's the numbers real quick for everyone listening, just so you know what we're talking about. LaMelo Ball's averaging 16 points a game. He's averaging just under six rebounds, um, 6.2 assists. Turns the ball over a bit more than Edwards at three times a game. Shooting a much – this is what gets me. He's shooting a much better field goal percentage and three-point percentage than Edwards. So, he's shooting 45% from the field, 37.7 from three-point line, 80% from the free throw line. Whereas, you get to Edwards, he's averaging more points by 0.7, 16.7 points, less turnovers, but less assists, less rebounds. So, assists are 2.5, uh, 4.3 rebounds. But his field goal percentage, that's what that's the one kicker that people probably don't realize when you look at points per game. He's at 38.5% from the field, um, 77% from the line, and 31% from the three-point line. So I think Mallow's argument, even if it was just looking at statistics on two bad teams, let's say, hypothetically, you'd, you'd take ball. But because he's got his team that was not predicted to do very well in that playoff hunt, I'd give it to, to ball right now. Moving on, Jawan Howard. Uh, you brought this one up to me. Potentially a matter of time till he gets to the NBA again. He's, of course, with the University of Michigan. They've had a fantastic year. He did make some comments. He was asked about his coaching future in Ann Arbor, which is in Michigan, and, and NBA rumors where he said, man, I'm in, I'm in Ann Arbor to stay, baby. I love Michigan. I love my job. I'm enjoying this experience. I'm also looking forward to growing each and every year, developing these young men into becoming the best version of themselves as a student athlete. This is a dream job for me, and I think my passion last year showed how much I appreciate being in this position. The NBA, it's a beautiful game. They have great coaches there, amazing talented players, beautiful brand. I enjoyed that experience for 25 years, 19 as a player and six as a coach. But with that, I'm going to continue growing with Michigan. Go blue. Do you buy that? Or is this just a matter of uh, I love it here? I'm going to you know, boost up my value. So if these NBA teams come knocking, they better come knocking with the Brinks truck. <laughs> I, do, I do believe that he thinks that right now. I don't think he's going to be like most uh, college coaches that go to the league or um, assistants that go get jobs where they got to take the any job possible, you know, any bad job that just goes their way. You're just going to jump on it because it's the NBA. What what Jawan Howard has done, you know, and he's a unique coach in my opinion because of the fact that he was a a great elite high school player. He was a fantastic, you know, elite college player, made one all-star game as a pro, was a good pro, not a great one. So people know who he is as players. So they relate to him and they automatically respect him. And he's got size and all that. He's had a type of career because I worked with him with Tim Grover for about 10 years, almost 10 years, um, you know, 10 summers together. I think like six, seven or six or seven summers together. And what, why I think he's going to be a great coach, you know, Bogues is like, like most, unlike most guys where they showed up at 11 o'clock to work out with nine guys with them, you know, and all this and, you know, it takes them 45 minutes to warm up and all that bullshit. Jawan would come in at 8 a.m. 
would come in with nobody, would be all business on the court, got his work in, always in shape, always respectable, always talk to people. You could ask him questions on the court like, if a double comes from this side, where are you going to be? Where's the pass going to be? Where's the outlet going to be? Where, where are you looking? And he was an unbelievable teacher, even as a player. And let's not forget, as a player, at the end of his career, he was coveted by some of the biggest maniacs of all time. Jeff Van Gundy loved him in Houston. Pat Riley and Spolstra had him in Miami. They kept him about a year or two way past his prime in Miami because he was a leader. And I know they do that with Haslam, but they did that there where he was just an unbelievable leader, teacher, you know, and you knew he was going to get into coaching. And then he gets into coaching. And you watch him, like, I usually show up two hours, two and a half hours before, you know, most other people show up, assistants show up. And he's already there working out, guys. He's teaching. He's talking. He's not He's not doing the thing. I've seen ex-players that are coaching, working out players that, like, leaving the court during the during pregame to get girls' numbers and shit. Like, he wasn't doing any of that. He's all business. He's a teacher. And, he, like, you know, they wouldn't have hired him if he wasn't because they don't bullshit around in Miami. So I think all that going forward, and now he's had success. Now I know that he already had a good team that, um, that Beeline left him when he went to Cleveland. So he already had a good team, but now he's got the number one recruiting class in the country coming in. So he doesn't need to go to the NBA right now. He could hold out for a really good job, not a great elite job. Like, you know, that's already geared to win a championship, but like he could get a mid to higher level job. And he could hold out because he's in demand. I would hire him yesterday because of, of his work ethic, his understanding of the game. He's got presence. He's a big dude and he loves to work, you know. And I know there was an article, there was an article written by Kevin Pelton about how, you know, ex-players don't get hired in the NBA and all that, you know, all that stuff. That's really not necessarily true, but there are good ex-players and there are terrible ex-players to coach. There are good guys that like go through the film room that are going to be really good coaches. And there are guys that if they have to have a conversation with a player, they shit their pants and they look at them like they ate a popsicle too fast. Like it, it's all by the individual. But I think this guy, how he approaches the game and how he teaches the game and how he had, even though he was a high level player, he had a role player work ethic. And I think that with that being said, and he could communicate with people and, you know, he doesn't, I, I love the guy. I think he'll be in the NBA at some point. I think right now he doesn't have to go anywhere. And I do think he really loves being in Michigan, especially playing there and having the history. But I think that if if the right job came coming, came calling, I think he'd take it. Yeah, I'm, I've enjoyed watching it. I think it's one of the rare occurrences too where a school or a pro franchise hires a former legend and they actually do well. Um, I'm usually against hiring former players from your own team that were legends and I'll give you the reason why. I feel like they're harder to fire. I feel like they take, you know, let's say uh, they're having a bad year this year and we're like, oh, we should probably fire them mid-season or the end of the season. Oh, let's give them another chance because it's our legend, our former legend. They usually get an extra two or three years more than you Joe Blow, and that can usually set your franchise back. You see it here with Australian rules football to an extent, um, NBA, whatever. So I'm usually against it, but in this circumstance, it's it's worked out perfectly. He looks like an absolute gun. Um, he did try to fight a college a rival college coach the other day, which I, I loved. 
<laughs> going into it with. Oh uh, yeah, I don't know who it was again. He's gone after me like that. He he went after me once like that. I, I was busting his balls during a workout. It was like like he was he was waiting to get signed. It was like in the fall, and I you know you know me. Sometimes my, my mouth gets the best of me, and uh, he came after me a little bit. Not that like that, but he uh, he's an intimidating dude, man. I would not want to fuck with him. I got into it with him, funnily enough, as well. My, I think it was my rookie year or my second year. Um, we, we had some back and forth. Um, he gave me a little bump and didn't really. He, he wasn't really a talker though, unless you talk to him. And then I just because was that was that young idiot that would just sprout off and just just. Lip, like swore at him or something and then he was like what'd you say young fella and I was like <laughs> yeah 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 that's exactly what he said yeah, young fella yeah, yeah, that's yeah, exactly yeah. what he, he said he was with Dallas at the yeah. time so whatever you that it might have been 06 or 07 but um, yeah like you said a, a fundamentally sound guy was never over athletic but just knew how to play the game so I'm looking forward to hopefully seeing him in the NBA one day but if he doesn't return I mean maybe he's just enjoying the beauty of being able to coach young young kids into men and and helping them with you know the rest of their career not just basketball wise but in life so good luck to Jawan howard fact or fake news myers leonard will play another game this nba season oh fuck no no oh wow that's that's, that's strong yeah no he does not he does not play another nba game this season i i thought maybe the question should have been will he play another nba game the rest of his career which well, i would segue. say he that's would my next one for you then so if you're saying fuck no d- Okay, you're saying fuck no for he's he's never going to play. W- will he play again? Yeah, he will. It, it'll take time. Imagine being an owner trying to explain to your Jewish fan base that you're going to take this guy this season, a month after or two weeks after he did whatever he did and said whatever he said. Like, I, I just can't see that this year. Like, if I was him right now, I would be trying to do as much work and being as public as possible about apologizing, begging and for people's forgiveness. And, and, and like I said before, like, go on some of these talk shows where they're going to hit him and they, and you just accept it. And, you know, stop with this bullshit about I don't understand what I said. Every NBA player talks about their fucking brand and all that shit. Well, be a fucking CEO. And if, when a CEO fucks up, they don't make excuses. They just say, I fucked up. It was my fault. I own it. I, I beg for your forgiveness. I, I want to earn your forgiveness and try to do as much charity work as he can. Maybe in two or three, you know, maybe another year, maybe, you know, sometime next year. I don't know if he should play in the EuroLeague because he's got to go to Maccabi Tel Aviv. I don't think that would be a good fucking scene, to be honest with you. Come to the NBL, wanna, Come to the NBL. Yeah, NBL. So maybe maybe we could uh, maybe we could put out enough media hype that he'll go to the NBL. But I think he'll be in the NBA. I think people will forget at some point. But especially where the world is today, in my opinion, he doesn't play another NBA game this season. And then possibly next year, at some point, maybe in the beginning of the year, somebody gives him a chance, but I can't see it, folks. What about you? Yeah, fact, I don't see him playing another game this season. I think he's just going to have to bunk it down, work out. Um, but it's kind of interesting because in the era of seven-footers that shoot threes, that's your guy. So, we'll be interested to see. But yeah, I mean, you mentioned that an owner is going to have to explain it to his Jewish fan base if he does sign him. Shoot, most owners are going to have to explain it to their own family. <laughs> like yeah, a high, exactly. number of, high number of owners are of 
are either Jewish or of Jewish descent, so he's kind of thrown himself a curveball. I don't believe he should be blackballed for the rest of his life. Um, I think he, everyone deserves nah. a second chance and people need to get on with it. But, yeah, I mean, I, I might, I even might go on record saying he might need to get to the NBA via somewhere else. I, don't, I, I might not even happen just via the offseason. He might have to actually either have a camp roster invite or go via China or Europe, prove it, you know, prove himself. If, a, if Andrew Gates gets back in the coaching, I'll, I'll, try, to, I'll try to segue that into his team. Why not? Why not? Do the, you can do the next one. <laughs> All right. Hey, Brad Stevens, did he make a good decision um, staying in the NBA over college? Fake news. I think Brad Stevens, from what I understand and what I know, he's not a rah-rah guy. He's, not a, he's a guy that kind of does not like conflict too much. Unbelievable X's and O's coach, Brainiac. But I think that's what hurts him in the NBA because I think at times you need to, like you said, you need to have those 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 tough meetings one on one or uh, you know with your team where you're going to tell someone something they don't like. From what I understand, I, I don't know for a fact that he's not, he's just not that guy. He likes to delegate that to his assistants and whatnot. That's why I think he's better suited for college. Uh, I think he's had success in college, um, and I just think he'll he'll have more success long term with young men. What about you? I think it's I think it's fact. I think it's a good decision staying in the NBA over college. And the biggest thing is he he's a very respected coach in the NBA. You know, he's a very like you said, a very smart coach, very good with his X and O's. Um, his team's not doing great right now, but I, I think that you know being in the NBA over the college deal it is not a great. I, I think. I think like if, even if things don't go well for him in Boston and he gets let go, he'll get another NBA job, another good NBA job. It's not like he's had a total failure there where he'll have to be an assistant and then move back in. I think the college game with the amount of cheating you have to do, you know, in the college game, I think about 90% of these schools cheat at some point and dealing with these, you know, if you're dealing with a prima donna in the NBA, it's a lot easier than dealing with a prima donna who can't fucking play in college. And, and if anybody listening here thinks that college is totally clean, nobody's going to Duke to frolic through the fucking quad or go for the sociology program. You know, all these schools do it, you know, at some point, one level or another. And I think dealing with that stuff at Indiana, it, it is good that you're home, but you got to recruit. It's a 20, it's a 24 hour a day job where you got to continuously recruit. You got to continuously deal with that element where in the NBA, the pay is really good. It's high level. Uh, you don't have to deal with it as much. The off season, you could, you know, sort of have some family time and he's a big family guy. And, and I think that like dealing with the, you know, you got to deal with some shit in the NBA too. No question about it. But I, I think that I think that he's made for the NBA. I think he'll be good. Is he a championship coach? Who the fuck knows? I think that's a more talent thing than a coaching thing. We talked about it all the time. But I think it's a good decision staying in the NBA. I'm not a big fan, especially if you get your feet wet and you've won in the NBA. I think it's, you know, you could stay in for a long time. You get it. He'll at least have two more chances at a job that pays an average of about $4 million a year. No boosters, no recruiting, none of that bullshit. You know, you don't have to go to a fucking gym in like Sioux Falls in the middle of the fucking summer. Like, you know, I, I think it's a, a much better lifestyle in the NBA. A lot of pressure, no question about it. But I think him staying in the NBA is better. What do you think takes up more family time, college coaching or NBA head coaching? Well, during the season, during the season, for sure – College is better than the NBA. You only play a couple of games a week. You don't have to travel as much. You know, you don't have a, a, as much responsibility. Now you have, you have a lot of media things you got to do and a lot of alumni things you got to do. 
but it's not it's nothing like the NBA where you travel, 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 travel. During the offseason, especially in July, now they've they've cut the weeks. You don't have to travel as much, but you're constantly on the phone. You constantly have to deal with the underbelly of recruitment, where which in, involves, you know, as you read in, in a lot of these, you know, a lot of these articles, you gotta deal with a lot of unsavory characters trying to get these players. So it's a lot like, you know. Is a lot of shit that goes on in college that you got to deal with. You got to worry about, like in the NBA, you're not going to lose your job if somebody breaks the law and like gets arrested. In college, you're constantly worrying about those guys are doing, you know, because if, you know, if one of your assistants are cheating, look at Rick Pitino, like Rick Pitino, you know, he got caught in a couple of things. His program at Louisville, he wasn't connected to either one of them on paper yet, you know, where an assistant in both cases, assistant coaches, you know, we're sort of behind it. Now, I don't know if he was a part of it or not, but well, that was under bro, his... First off, it wasn't a couple of things, though. <laughs> allegedly <laughs> allegedly paying hookers yeah. to bang recruits. <laughs> right. But again, Small his hands weren't on any of it. I'm not saying anything, but what I'm saying is, <laughs> like, if your assistants cheat, you lose your job. Yep. If your players get in trouble, you lose. You could lose your job. Even going to class. Even going to class. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Fuck. But like, then you got to deal with class stuff. Guys getting eligible. You got to deal with like, if kids transfer, you know, if kids a piece of shit and he fucking, you know, transfers because he's not playing thirty eight minutes a night because he's, you know, he's a five, you know, he's a five four two guy and he's pissed that he's not fucking averaging thirty a game. He transfers and if he leaves early without having a certain a certain amount of credits, you you know, you can you can miss out on scholarships and things like that. There's a million rules and this recruiting thing is crazy. And dealing with parents and AAU coaches and agents and all this stuff for these high school kids are it's the recruiting side is totally takes you out of out of the fucking shit. It's a twenty it's a it's three sixty-five, but especially in the summer and it's just craziness. Look, some guys are really good at it and some guys, you know, maneuver through it real well. But I think that like it, if you're in the NBA and you're already established and you're going to, you you know, I think he could coach in at least, even if he's average, he can coach another 10 years in the NBA, you know, until like the last guy fires him and he can't get another job again. Oh, without a doubt. He's a, yeah, he's, he's a talented coach. It's a like, lot of money. And just to be able to have that, have that option to be able to do both is, is pretty impressive. Yeah. All right. So, folks, you're the college guy. Will the NCAA... Well, the the NCAA will have to pay its players full time salary within the next ten years. Fake news. I think it sounds good, but I, I just don't. My issue is if you're paying <laughs> the men's basketball team, you're going to have to then pay all those other sports the same because the Title Nine thing it actually fucks them over from doing that, and it actually prevents them from doing it because it would it would bankrupt the university. So basically, and there's an argument for and against that. Like you look at Zion Williamson for what he brought to college basketball and Duke, should he have been paid 50 grand, 100 grand a year for his image rights? That's arguable, right? But then you're going to have some dude or, or girl playing lacrosse or a swimmer saying I want the same money and you're like, "Whoa, hang on a second, like we <laughs> we're losing money. Yes. We're losing money <laughs> for you for you to swim yeah. for us. Like we're losing money." So, I don't think it'll happen, um, but something they're going to have to make some tweaks. And one thing I forgot to mention when you, when you talk about the NCAA, the beauty of the NCAA, in my opinion, is there's no face of the NCAA. So, they've ran they, – they've basically clocked the game. Like, you look at the NBA, you look at 
all leagues around the world, there's a there's someone, a CEO, you know, Adam Silver's a commissioner, whoever it is, there's someone that's accountable for what happens, right? With the NCAA, it's a bunch of cronies sitting in a room that are face, you know, they're essentially faceless, nameless people that we don't, you know, we have a name, but you don't know what they look like. They're faceless and it's genius to, to a way to run a business that way. So you can't you can't just be like oh you know John Smith over there you know they they you know not they should pay the athletes a little bit or they you know it's it's the equivalent to the they're playing sport for just equivalent of books it's not fair blah 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 there, there's no face to it so just something I forgot to mention that I think is a genius business move from them you never really know who's pulling the strings but yeah fa- fake news on that one yeah I think it's fake news but I think what you're gonna see. You know, right now they're in the middle of trying to see about the uh, the player likeness. You know, being able to, you know, you know, sign shoe deals while in college. Being able to, uh, you could sign with an agent to a certain degree in college. You could, you know, not right now, but they're very close. Um, being able to like pay for like you get sponsorships, basically like do signings and things. I think you're going to see more things like that. Like I would think that you're going to see, you know, all Jersey sales, a percentage of like revenue on Jersey sales, like go to athletes. Like you're going to see more things like that and a little bit of revenue sharing a little bit. The problem is there's going to be so many lawsuits because, you know, like you said, the, you know, the, the men's and women's lacrosse people are going to be like, wait a minute, they're getting paid and we're not. That's bullshit. And regardless if they're going to win or not, it's going to be a bunch of lawsuits and who gets paid and who gets paid what. And if it's true that the NCAA gives out 90% of their money that they get back to their member institutions, it seems like it's one of those deals where, yeah, they get a lot of money. You know, and the, what's bullshit about them is they're non for profit, which anybody who signs a, a billion dollar TV deal every year, you know, and you're saying you're non for profit's full of shit, but they do pay out a lot of this money. So there's not a lot of wiggle room. I would, you know, I would maybe try to get some of the jersey sale stuff and the likeness and, and try to do some things like that. You know, where, hey, look, if you're a swimmer and you're really popular, fuck, go for it. If you want to do a swimming camp or whatever. What I like about the NCAA Bogues in, is it sets up a brand for the kids because, like, a lot of their, like, it's just like the NBA, right? Like, you know, everyone sees all-stars, but they don't see what the mid-level player does and the lower player does. Same thing in college. Like, yeah, the big-time player you know, gets to play at Kentucky or Kansas or whatnot. But they move those players through. There's going to be another player. They're always going to get players. And they built up this fan base for years, you know, for years. And it sets those players up to have a lot of success at some of these schools based on their playing experience there. And the NCAA sort of set that up for them. And the member schools did that because they built up their brand for years and have these people support the people who play for those, you know, for those universities. Look, they're not perfect. They're scumbags in a lot of ways. Don't get me wrong. But like, I remember I went to um, University of Kentucky, had a fantasy camp, and I was on a plane with Antoine Walker. And Antoine was telling me a story, a couple of things about how University of Kentucky, I don't know if I mentioned it. Did I mention the barnstorming tour on, on the show before? No. So they have what's called the barnstorming tour. And again, only Kentucky in a couple of schools can do this. So when you finish your career at Kentucky, uh, either you come out early for the draft or you um, you come out early or you graduate, you go on this like 
month-long exhibition tour throughout the state of Kentucky where you play all these exhibition games against like men and they pay for admit, you know, they pay for tickets and things. Well, these players that like that are, they only allow you to do it if you're, you know, if you're just graduating or you're leaving for the draft. A lot of these players, even if you're average, you make up about a hundred grand for the, for the month. I remember Wayne Turner, uh, who played at Kentucky is one of the, you know, like the national leader in final four minutes or final four NCAA games played for Kentucky, played for Patino and Tubby Smith. I remember he's supposed to come to Boston and work out for the draft. A friend of mine represented him and he goes, I can't do it. I, you know, because I can't work out for some teams because I, I got this barnstorming tour. I'm going to make 98 grand in four weeks. And like that's through Kentucky and people being crazy about Kentucky and they set these things up based on these players to be successful after their career. And what Antoine said, he said, look, you could have like the 13th guy that barely got in that fans love that's making 150000 in Lexington selling, you know, tractor equipment or selling, you know, sporting goods because everybody wants to deal with the Kentucky player. Now, that doesn't happen at like Oral Roberts, but it does give them a little bit of sort of a brand to help them you know, look, it's all about networking. Like you played, you were a pretty good player. That could set you up for for some opportunities. Not every player, like people are saying, well, these players should be paid one hundred seventy five, two hundred thousand. That's bullshit. Like you can't do that because a, you got to make it equal, and second, like there's always going to be another player. There's very few unreplaceable, you know, irreplaceable players. NCAA is not perfect, but they do set up a good. They do set up a good like framework in organization for these kids to sort of get their scholarship but also get opportunities after they're done playing if it's pro pro sports or another job based off an alumni they went to school with you know they do set them up for some good things they're not perfect they need to work it out but i think that you know i i think it's a pretty good framework for the kids in, in most cases yeah fair enough it makes total sense Moving on to the Q&A, got a few qu- quick ones here. Loving the pod, honesty from Pro and yourself. 14-year-old son and I both laughed out loud in the last episode when Pro and you, yourself were talking about all the stats quoted in the NBA and you mentioned how some are like the only player in NBA to drop 20 points in a quarter after having to take a shit at halftime. Question for you this week. You've talked in previous pods about kids playing multiple sports to a certain age before focusing on one or the other. What are some of the physical training or exercises kids should be contemplating to aid their basketball as they start to hit their teens and are playing at an elite level. That's from Gareth in Eltham, Victoria. I'm not sure what age your kids are. Um, I would strongly advise not having them lift weights probably before 15, 16, at least heavyweights. Um, there's an argument that some people make for potentially even later because you're still growing. But I've seen some people, trainers and kids, having kids lift hard weights at 12, 13. I think that's a pretty silly decision, especially for kids that are kind of long and lanky as it is. Let them grow into their body first. But for me, the biggest thing that helped me pro was skipping on a, on a jump rope, Americans call it. Um, that was a lifesaver for me. Um, so, I was kind of, you know, a lot of growing pains, a lot of kind of not mobility, but just, just coordination issues because I was growing so fast, big feet, wasn't really that coordinated at times. Like I'd, I'd be coordinated for a month or two and then have a growth spurt and then, then look like I never played basketball before, you know, and um, the skipping just really got me into a, into a good rhythm and, 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 and really worked on my footwork and um, the trainer that I had at the time, crazy dude. And he, yeah, that was the start of every session. It was, it was like legit 10, 15 minutes of skipping. And that doesn't sound 
like a lot, but anyone at home, get a get a skipping rope or a jump rope and do it for a minute straight and you'll see what I mean. And it was 10, 15 minutes of that. He was huge on stretching. They were the big things. And I started doing some plyometrics as I got stronger. So stuff with ankle weights, a bit of jumping, strengthening, but I never really got to hardcore lifting, um, heavy weights, squatting and doing all that, like meathead type, type weight lifting till I was 17, 18. So that's what I would do um, and recommend. But I mean, the more time your kid spends around a basketball hoop in my opinion at a young age 10 11 12 13 um i think that's more important than the physical side and the physical side will then take care of itself later what are your thoughts yeah i think somebody would you know ask me a question of quantum physics before they fucking ask me a question about how you know what 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 they should do to stay in shape but what i would suggest for uh kids before they start weights i'm with you i don't think they should be lifting at a younger younger age until they're a little bit older you know 16 17 stretching and core work for me i you know maybe some yoga you know just get work on their flexibility work on their core work on the uh, foundation to when they start lifting and things and like you said in a previous podcast like even in the nba they do a lot less lifting and more like band work and more plyometric and more you know things like that where they're not trying to build you up like a meathead where they're trying to make you lean and, and flexible so i think flexibility um jumping rope is great you know for footwork and you know keep you going like that and yeah, I agree. I, I think those things are good to set up a good foundation. Yep, I agree. And the other one I'd include is ladder work. So, uh, kind of a ladder that's laid out that has about, you know, 20 odd squares and doing different footwork stuff too. That as well helps. So, thanks for the question. Next one, good day, Bogues and Pro. Bogues, this one is mainly for you and maybe you won't answer it. Like, Shocker. Maybe you won't answer it, he says. Like, fuck, I won't answer it um, because you'll piss off the Yanks. So, do you know what a Yankee is, Pro? Oh, what uh, uh, a Yank is! I would ass- I would assume an American. Yeah, there you go. So we call we call you Yanks, or Australians even go further and and, and um, call you septic tanks because it rhymes with Yanks. That's kind of a bit harsh, but just what some Aussies call Americans. <laughs> Having lived half your life immersed in the American culture and having a broader view of the world than most people around you at that time, did you ever get pissed off when the Yanks called their president the leader of the free world and the NBA and and the winners of the NBA championship, NBA champions, um, which is a domestic league, calling it world champions. It really gets to me. I'm not sure if it's arrogance or ignorance. Cheers. Really appreciate both of you, David Trombetta and Ozzy living in Germany. So, what is it, pro? Is it arrogance or ignorance? Why do you guys have to always call everything we're the world champions? Well, first of all, the guy told me to fuck off by not answering the question, and now he appreciates <laughs> both of us. So, what the fuck? It's, it's no, one or the other, brother. This is an inclusive, diverse podcast, bro. I'm, in, I'm including you in this. Yeah, include my ass. I don't know, man. I don't get I don't I get too fucking caught up in it. Now, maybe if I lived in another country, I, I might. I don't know. I, you know me. I'm fucking- I don't give a fuck, to be honest with you. Like- Oh, no, but just a lot of people overseas, a lot of people overseas do mention it, you know, the equivalent of us yeah, having a league. And, I could and being, see that. Like being- the, NBL, the NBL saying world champions. <laughs> yeah, I could see ignorance a little bit. I, you know, like, I don't think they even under, I don't even think they like worry or think about how that impacts other people. You know, I don't think, maybe that's a part of arrogance. I don't know. But like, I just think that that's what they call it. And look, A, it makes people feel better, especially that live in that country or play in that league, you know, and they, they're like, we want to be the best. Everybody wants to overmarket or over, overdo what, you know, their actual value in the world or, or what have you. I don't know. I don't get too caught up with it. I don't give a fuck what they called it, you know, and I, I'd call it whatever. Like, 
But what do you think, Bogues? Again, it's it's harder for me to answer the question because, like, I've dealt with it my whole life, and I yeah, never you probably really don't even notice about it. it. Yeah, you probably don't notice it. I mean, internationals yeah, notice it. I, yeah, we notice it. It's yeah. Um, it's interesting. I mean, look, there's the argument that most Americans would make. He's like, well, fuck, we're the best in the world at it, so beat us. It's like, yeah, but, you know, we don't, you know, we don't really play baseball. Like, <laughs> like you know, it's, um, yeah. I guess, essentially, we could call ourselves the world champions of Australian rules football because we're the only country that plays it. But with basketball now, I think, becoming a world game, you know, it's an interesting one to still call on, calling themselves the world champions because I think that should be saved for an international event because technically you don't even have an opportunity to compete against whoever the NBA champions are. So that's where it pisses people off overseas a little bit. I, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't really care too much about it. I've had a laugh about it before. Like, hang on a second, world champions or president of the free world or – but that comes down to, in my opinion, of, of the powers of America and, and what it's what it means historically for the West and the, and, and the free world. Is America is always involved in some war or something or this or that. So I guess that's just the way people over there see it and probably still would to this day. Yeah, David, if you're going to send us another question, especially that you don't want me to answer it, you know, send us a picture of you eating a bratwurst, you know, at least give it, <laughs> make it a little bit enjoyable for us. Fuck. Yeah, maybe he's in Dirk's hometown. You never know. <laughs> sure. Why not? All right. Next one. Hey, boys. What do team, why, why do teams wait for just before the trade deadline to make their moves instead of make them, making them earlier? That's from uh, Matt Rudder from Fish at Biz. What do you got, Pro? Why do teams wait closer to the well, deadline? Yeah, I think, I mean, unless there's something like uh, James Hodden for Jeremy Lamb and, you know, that deal that Oklahoma City gave for, for them or something that you had to get done early, I think the teams want to wait until the last possible moment because you don't know what when teams get a little bit more desperate. You want to wait till you get the best deal. Some people you know, value what they have and they always think they're going to probably miss out on something and you never know it's going to come across your, you know, your desk like an hour before trade deadline or half an hour before trade deadline, especially if you have players. Like if you're Houston, you could have waited as long as you wanted to, you know, to make the Harden deal and you could have just kept on waiting until people up the ante, up the ante, up the ante because you had what everybody wanted. You know, if you don't really have something that's all that valuable and someone gives you a protected first round pick and you're like, shit, that's the best thing we're possibly going to get. But if you have a player with or players with value, you're going to deal. You might as well wait until the end, because most likely if they really want your players, the other team or teams that you're dealing with aren't going to want to like, you know, leave the table. They're going to want to make a trade with you. So I think that's the reason why they want to wait until people get desperate or maybe that trade that you don't see coming through comes through to you. But that can backfire too, right, bro? So you're, you're talking about uh, James yes. Harden. You can you can drum yourself up interest and try to get more leverage. You've got three teams that are bidding and you're like, we're going to wait, we're going to wait, we're going to wait. But then, yeah. then, then you're 20 days from deadline, you're 10 days from deadline, you're five days from deadline. You've got a guy like James Harden who's basically trying to eat himself out of the Houston Rockets. Um it can then backfire because teams are like, oh, shit, do you want to move him or not? Because this, this is our final offer. And then if you don't take that, now you're stuck with him till the offseason. Then what do you do? So there's um there's an art form in it, I believe, and even with a superstar. I think a lot of – the like you talk about other players, like um, I think teams will just – whether they're around 500 or like a Sacramento, for instance, they're probably in a position now like, shit, 
are we going to make an, another little run to get to 500 or have a chance for the playoffs? Um, probably not, but that's where they hesitate. Like, oh, maybe we'll, maybe it'll work. Maybe it'll work. Maybe, and then, then then that window passes and then they don't do anything. And I was in Milwaukee for a, num- yeah. a number of years where I thought we needed to make moves and we weren't going anywhere and there was some interest on doing moves and they just never pulled the trigger on things and you're just like, fuck, like we need to do something. Um, so it's, it's unfortunately Sacramento. If you're watching the the movie The Titanic, they're about ninety minutes movie time after they hit the fucking iceberg. <laughs> I'd be trying to trade everybody as early as fucking possible. Blow it up, you know? Yeah, because you know, yeah, it's it's almost at the scene where uh, our guy our guys hang clinging to the fucking door and about to let go. <laughs> they need to fucking let go and start trading people. Yeah, fair point. Probably used the wrong example. Probably should have went someone out in, out east, maybe Orlando or something. Who's still technically in a playoff hunt. But I regress, pro. Okay, next one is, hey, Bogues and Pro, loving the podcast. The brutal honesty is great, and the banter between you two is first class. Last episode, you talked about coaches walking into great opportunities. Do you think anyone could have coached you guys to a 2015 championship, or was Steve Kerr the right guy at the right time? Interested in your take on this, as he seems to be getting some criticism at the moment. That's Paul from South Morang. No, I mean, Steve did a phenomenal job. I can't take away anything um, for Steve's performance with us, like I said, and I've been on record saying Steve's number one attribute to that team was cleaning up turnovers, making us more accountable to turnovers, and and just making sure we're fundamental with the ball, and then just people management. Um, I think Steve's an okay X's and O's guy. He's got some good some good plays here and there. I don't think he's elite in that category. I think he does. I think his biggest strength, in my opinion, is the Phil Jackson esque of people management and knowing who to give a hug to, knowing. Who to kind of like a Draymond Green? I'm going to roll him up on purpose to get him on edge because I know he plays better that way. He was a genius at that kind of stuff. Um, I think the reason why now he's getting a bit of criticism is because they're in an interesting position. They've got a few young young guys on that team, um, especially in Wiseman, where the development's almost becoming as important as the winning was a couple of years ago. They're not going to be a 50-60 win, probably not a 60-win team for for a number of years. Maybe not even a 50-win team. So now there's that argument of, okay, what have, what have you got as far as development? As far as development, I haven't seen that from Steve because he hasn't had to do it. So I'm not sure if he has it. So it'll be interesting to see in what direction that goes. What do you think? All right. So with – you want to start with the Steve Kerr thing first or – Yeah, your world, man. Well, the Steve Kerr thing, I don't really know because you, you, know, you dealt with it. I didn't. Now, I do know this. is like X is and O is the most overrated fucking attribute as an NBA coach. You know, like – you know, Phil Jackson wasn't an X and O guy. He had Tex Winner that did everything out of the triangle, diagram, most of his stuff. But he knew how to push players' buttons. He knew how to deal with issues they were having in the team and confront people. Well, he didn't really confront people at the end of his career with LA, but you know, especially like in the in the beginning, in the middle, um, you know, he he confronted people. He, he he had the balls to do that, and that's what made him special with that. I think with Steve Kerr, from what I've heard, he, he, he was confrontational when he needed to be. And he would, he would call people out when he needed to be. He called the best player out and the worst player out and everybody in between. And I think that that's a, a trait that most NBA coaches don't do. I think they coddle the best players and then they, they want to be, you know, Tommy tough guy with the, with the players further down their bench, where I think that's a championship level you know, requirement, in my opinion, that you need to be able to, you know, talk to players, you need to be able to be truthful to them, and you got to be able to push those buttons, where they're going to be roaring to play every night. And, you know, it's not really an X and O thing. Um, 
Now the development stuff, I don't know. Um, but again, he, he hasn't had to be able to do that. He, you know, but as far as a coach, I think that, um, I think that he was a perfect guy for that because again, I don't care how smart you are. I don't care how many X's and O's or tricky plays, you know, if you can't get everybody to believe in you and have presence and then have the balls to have those hard conversations, bench guys that, that, you know, weren't benched in their, in their past and make those tough decisions. You're not going to be a championship level coach. You know, so I, I think that he did those things. Yes, he had a team that he walked into that was really good. But I think if you don't have the right guys that tell you the truth and have those tough conversations when they needed to be done and call people out from the best player to your 15th best player, I don't. I think you're going to underachieve. So I think he was he was the perfect guy for that, at least from what I've heard. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt about it whatsoever. But now, like I said, they're in a transition period, so a new strength of his needs to be shown where. You know, you've you've got a you've got a number two pick. You got a top five pick. You got to develop that kid. Um, and I've spoken at record that that's a that's a hard. The five spot is is a unique position to play in that system because of the shooting you if, have around. It's not a it's not a natural five spot that you would have learned in college or learned on other NBA teams. So, looking forward to see yeah. how how Steve makes that pivot. And I think a lot of it's going to come down to you know who his assistant and development coaches are. Yeah, if you don't have talent in this league, you're not going to win. You know, like what. You know, like I always say, you could win with average. You you could win with average coaching. You're not going to win with average players. And again, these play the, your better players are getting older. They could still make another run without question. Wiseman's a good player, but now it's going to be different. It's going to be different expectation. You're going to have to coach those guys up. Probably in the past with young players, like he probably didn't have to do as much. Or obviously, expect much from him. So now it's going to be coaching them up the right way. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be walking them through mistakes. It's going to be giving them minutes and opportunities, keeping their, you know, keeping their conf- confidence up because being having confidence as an NBA player is the most important thing and hold those guys accountable. Now they're going to have this Minnesota pick, which I think in my opinion, what happens is Minnesota keeps the pick this year. And then they're probably going to get a 10 or 11th pick next year when that pick becomes unprotected. So now you're going to have, you know, you're going to have a um, Wiseman. You're going to have your guys coming back from injury. And then you're also going to have a top 10 pick in next year's draft. Plus, you're going to have your own pick, which I have no idea why they're trying to win fucking games now. Like, I think they should be try to get pretty bad and then, you know, get a good pick. Maybe they'll luck out and get Minnesota's pick, but I doubt it. And then they'll have these picks plus their players coming back. But, you know, I, I know everybody wants to win there and do the best that they can. They're going for that elusive 10th seed. You can, you know, just scrape into the playoffs. Yeah, you can still get a good player for sure. And No, no I'm saying you know, they're going for the 10th, a- the 10th seed in the playoffs. <laughs> That's all they that elusive oh, 10th seed. Yeah. I, yeah, I apologize. I didn't hear it. But, yeah, you're right. I mean, that's – but what's the, what's that bring you? You know, that brings you, okay, we're in the – we made the Fuck, playoffs. Bro, I was being sarcastic, tough. man. I was being sarcastic. It's fucking late here, motherfucker. We got, you know, we got daylight savings times. That, unless, you know, what the fuck? Give me a fucking break, uh, would you please? Uh, joke missed anyway. Next question. This one's a long one, so get comfortable, but it's it's kind of cool. I appreciate a fan like this. So, this is the pre-question, pre-question part of the email, so feel, feel free to read it or not. I'm an old man who has worked backstage in live theater my entire adult life. The last thing I am is someone who fawns over celebrities or special people. 
I know we all pulled out, pulled out our pants one league at a time. With that said, I appreciate the enjoyment I received from watching various parts of your basketball career. So thank you for that. Working backstage means that working nights and weekends, which is usually when you played, as a lifelong Dubs fan, Warriors fan, going to games was not something I did because I had work. Fortunately, the internet and my cable box DVR made it possible for me to watch and witness every game of your, your run with the <laughs> Dubs. I would try to watch the games at work, but invariably I would miss some stuff due to Cues. Here are a couple of questions inspired by your time with the Dubs. Who was the best card player on the team and who was the worst? Oh, geez. That's a tough one. Uh, the best was not including myself, of course. I mean, David Lee was up there. Very good card player. Draymond Green's gotten much better. Um, the worst, I would have to say, out of our group on the plane was Clay Thompson. Sorry, Clay. But he was... Uh, he was all over the place um, and would get very frustrated with the game at times and make some simple mistakes. So that's that question. Um, th- were the videos of the Coco accurate portrayals of how well everyone got along with each other? 100%. Um, no more. To elaborate on that, we, we we really got along well. It was one of the few teams that guys generally like being ar- genuinely like being around each other, which was important. Um, two more. One is uh, I would also love to hear your thoughts and feelings about Ron Adams as a coach. Uh, I, I love Ron Adams. He's a kind of a league legend. Everyone's kind of worked with him at times. But he was his whole thing was he would bring the same energy and attention to detail every day with our defensive drills. So he ran our, our defensive side of practice to the point where guys would get pissed off with it because it'd be, you know, do it properly, don't do it at all kind of attitude. And, and um, he was an integral part of why we're good defensively. Have you have you worked with him before, Pro? He's fantastic. We did in Dallas um, during Summer League. We did um, Cuban had me start a, like a player development symposium. And we had all the young coaches come and, and we had a, like five or six speakers and Ron sp- spoke one year. He's just a coach's coach. He loves to coach. He loves working with players. He, he's very well versed in people get along with him. He's old school. Um, he always trying to help people and I have utmost respect for him. I think he's a fantastic coach and, you know, he's a great hire for them. Um, I think to have on their bench or I think now he's a consultant. Yeah, they've pivoted and, him off. Yeah, he's, he's pivoted to a different role, but he was he was always one of those guys that would come to the gym early when guys were getting shots up and he would take him through just naturally work his way towards like Festus Azili or whoever it was and, and just start doing individuals with him with not even at request, just just started working with guys because he loved it so much and really dry sense of humor, a really good dude, really um, cultural as far as like he knew all the best restaurants in town. He actually taught me Funnily enough, he, he had a little um, a little note, like his notes on, on the iPhone with all the restaurants from around around the world, essentially, so he'd remember them. And I, I've actually started doing that because I learned it off him whenever I'd visit a really good spot. I'd kind of write down, you know, Italian spot on this street in this city. So then, you know, I'd go to cities now and I've got I've got my spots that I go to, but I learned that from him. So awesome, dude. Final one was, do you remember the playoff moment versus Denver where you single-handedly stopped a four-on-one fast break? Can't rule out five. I can't rule out five-on-one. Um, wish I could find a video of it. I was literally in awe. I consider it one of your finest moments as a warrior. I can't really remember that, to be honest with you, but- yeah, I, I assume it's true. But yeah, I had a really good series in that playoff playoff run my first year with the Warriors and, and was really, really integral defensively. So appreciate all that support. That was from um, San Francisco Bay Area resident George Oldham. So appreciate that. But story time, I thought that we would segue into some NCAA stories. I'm not sure if you have very many for us. But for me, I just wanted to kind of talk about what I talked about earlier. We had to get another job. I've, I've spoken about it on, on the My Journey series. And for people out there, it's not all 
glamorous. Uh, it's not as glamorous as you think. For an international student back then, there were there was a set of rules that I'd moved off campus and was getting seven eight hundred a month, and I got taxed. I think it was fifteen or twenty percent of that. So I ended up with like six ninety or seven hundred bucks. My rent was four hundred, so it didn't leave me with much money um, for food and and um, petrol money and insurance and all that kind of shit. So. Um, I had to get a job at, at the sports bar that we spoke about earlier. Just had to do different things. And um, I just remember like I, I was kind of bitter when, when thinking about the NCAA because of that. And then we'd go and play some big-time schools. I remember North Carolina parking lot um, full of Mercedes-Benzes and Cadillac Escalades that the players were driving. <laughs> I'm just like, what the fuck? Like, so, like, <laughs> as you said, pro, there's – you know, there's ways that they can navigate getting around the rules and those those kind of schools had massive boosters that are in car yards and hold you know and all these kids are, are driving brand new cars and I'm driving a nineteen ninety five bright purple Pontiac Grand Am. So um talking about those memories, I remember so we were on probation when I first got there, Pro. Majerus had um I think he got in trouble for this is what he got in trouble for. Keith Van Horn's father had died. I believe uh, his final year with Rick Majerus. Rick Majerus took him out to dinner and paid for dinner. Got fucking sanctioned for it. Can you believe that shit? Yeah, I've heard stories like that, man. Like it's funny when I was in college, uh, we were a Division three school, you know, so we weren't very good. But they had this thing called NCAA News. It was like a new uh, newsletter, well, a newspaper, like once a month that they mailed out. And then they had the infractions section and wow. the smallest infraction. So like, um, uh, got you know, an assistant coach helped the player move, gave him a mattress, um, paid for a meal. I remember Jim O'Brien, who was a Boston college coach who went to Ohio state, cleanest guy you'd ever want to meet, you know, and he had an international player called Redenovich, last name was Redenovich, Serbian, I think. Yeah, I remember him. And yep. his dad, his dad died and this guy just like made the final four a year or two before this great, you know, great deal. And he ended up paying for this kid to fly to, you know, his parents, you know, so his dad's yeah. funeral or what have you. And they fucking fired him for it. And he ended up like suing the NCAA or suing the school and make it, you know, getting like, over a million dollar settlement. But yeah, man, you know, sometimes, sometimes like common sense has to come into things like there's a difference between giving a kid a brick of cash to come to your school or you know like going out to a meal uh, a meal or taking out taking your team out after you win or you know flying a kid home you know for a, a funeral or whatnot like you know it's, it's it gets a little gets That's a little why I have no sympathy time. I have no sympathy for the, the hole they've dug themselves in because it's 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 that that extreme that they go to where there's no sympathy and no human element of the NCAA. I can't feel sorry for anything that happens to them because that's you know it's ridiculous and it's it's sad. Um, I got a, a, one of my best friends went to a, a small D two school and I was talking to him about just the NCAA and all this going on and he um he he has a really like his back's like pretty much screwed up right now and. He was saying like, you know, when he was playing for his school, he had an issue and they just tried to cover it up and were giving him cortisone injections and, you know, he wants to play but at the same time something was wrong and now he's he's suffering the consequences of it and you're not an employee as a student athlete. So, you know, if you get hurt, something happens to you, you've got really no workers' compensation, um, which is ridiculous and there was a story that we spoke about off air that I think there was a football player a number of years ago that got um, – might have been five, ten years ago now. might have been a 30 for 30 or something, but he, he basically got a really bad you know, head knock and ended up in a wheelchair and 
and his mother then had to basically take him in. He got he got cut from 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 his scholarship, obviously, or, or they let him finish his schooling, but got no money. But then you know the mum had to fit her house with disabled facilities, put a ramp up, you know, convert the bathroom, had to draw a mortgage on her house, and the NCAA was kind of washing its hands from it. Um, which she, I think she took him to court for four, three or four years. Eventually, got a settlement, but they're the kind of things that. Yeah, I, I, I just don't understand um, and I have no sympathy for when they get in trouble and that was a prime example. I mean, Keith Van Horn's father dies. The, the human thing to do is to take that kid to dinner or even a guy like myself, 19-year-old kid, homesick, struggling, mental mental health. I'm going to take him out to, to his favorite restaurant and get a $100 tab. Um, I just don't – I don't understand how that is illegal. But in, in saying that, we, we were on probation and I remember at that time it was two hours – um, you could do two hours on individuals a week leading into the preseason, leading into the first official week of, of training. And so I spoke about this on my journey, what Rick Majerus used to do because we were in Salt Lake City. We started a training at like random ass gyms, man. So like he'd have individuals like a Jewish community center or a Mormon, the back of a Mormon church had a basketball court in it. So I got there and I was like my freshman year, I'm like, why the hell are we training in all these random gyms? Like what? We've got a brand. We've got a really nice, essentially new uh, practice facility. Like why? And then after a while, I figured it out is because he was he was so scared that if he went, you know, which he did, if he went 20, 30, 40, 50 minutes over that that forty minute block of three individuals, that some asshole will record it and send it to the NCAA. So his his strategy, I'm just gonna move. I'm just gonna move around <laughs> randomly to different fucking churches and and whatever and. And that, that's kind of what he did, but that's what the NCAA makes you do. I also got a – I remember I got a, um, a VCR, so that's showing my age, so a, a video cassette tape recorder, um, and I got it from a coach to watch game tape before certain games. And our co- the assistant coach that gave it to me was shitting himself. He's like, please do not tell anyone I gave you this. It's illegal. Like we can, get, we're on probation. We can get in trouble for it. And I'm just like, what the fuck? Like I'm, I'm trying to better myself and watch tape. Like what the fuck am I going to do with a VCR? Like sell it for forty dollars and why that money to my parents? Like what the hell, man? Hanson Double makes very little sense. Like they've had I mean, the rules that they make, especially like training kids, like training your own players. I understand it. They don't want some guy, some player that needs to go home during the summer, and then the coach wants him there to work out or what have you. And then, you know, and then like cut the kid because he wasn't or renounced his scholarship because he wasn't doing the summer sessions. But, you know, they're trying to protect those guys or like have it where like, well, not all, not all universities could afford another coach to work players out or whatnot. I mean, they need to, they need to really sharpen up some of these rules and really make a difference. And some of the things that they do makes no sense. Like they, they put that committee with, um, who they uh, the girl they put like David Robinson, but then they had that lady Condoleezza Rice on like analyzing summer basketball and recruiting and things like, and they don't get anything done. It's just like bureaucratic bullshit. Like you gotta have, you gotta really make a difference in what makes sense to help these kids, you know. And that's what you're trying to do. You know, you're trying to get them for four years. You're trying to get them to graduate. You're trying to get them to get every opportunity possible. If you're gonna like give somebody a VCR, like that's not a that's not a rules violation. Like again, they're like they'll punish they'll punish that poor fucking bastard, that GA that's making two grand stipend a year, but they won't punish fucking you know a major school for fucking cheating. 
It's just crazy. It's just they turn their cheek on other people and then they want to bust it, you know, bust the, the small people. It's just, yeah, like, and the, and the problem is, like, and I know I like the NCAA, but they don't really even need the NCAA. Like, teams could schedule themselves. You could have somebody govern, you know, you could have somebody govern, like, rules committee. You could have somebody govern the tournament. You could have somebody, and, like, these schools could just, you know, go on themselves. You know, they, they come to see... You know, they come to see Alabama football or Kentucky basketball. Like the NCAA, it doesn't matter who's running it. You know, Barnum and Bailey could run it. It doesn't matter. But like, they need to really smarten the fuck up with the rules that they make. It just, it makes the, it makes it hard on the kid and just bad experiences. You know, look, there's a lot of good experiences that come with it, but there's a lot of these stupid rules that just get in the way. 100%. You know? and, and like you said, like if it's, if it's a matter of some assistant coach showing up, with a briefcase of cash to recruit a kid, yeah, highly illegal, sanction them. But if it's a coach buying a kid a meal because his father died because he's homesick or whatever, like have some sort of common sense. Like you can't put a rule in for that. Oh, we've got a fund for for player family deaths that you can use. That'll probably be the next thing they come out with, how stupid they are, you know, like <laughs> like no, like yeah. it's, com- it's common sense. So you, you got to have a bit of common sense about yourself and just make sure that kids are taken care of as much as they can be. But, you know, it was even as ridiculous as Rick Majerus came out to recruit me. I'd already signed, but he came out to recruit me and I was playing a game when he came out that weekend. He wasn't allowed to watch because it was a dead period. So for those that aren't listening, those that are listening that aren't aware, a dead period means there's times where you're not allowed to watch your recruit, I'm already signed with Utah. You're not allowed to watch your recruit's own games because you could potentially be recruiting someone else on their team. You know, it's just not just absolutely crazy stuff like that. And um, I guess that's just that's just how how things are in an overregulated world. Yeah, I mean, if anybody re- um, listening to the podcast want to sort of get a little bit more read on some of the, you know some of the hardships some college players have with the money versus not getting it. The Fab Five about the the uh, the Michigan team, they do a lot of things where the kids were like all those like all Americans like Jawan Howard and you know um, and Jalen Rose and and um, Chris Weber and the other two were Calvary Ray King and Jackson. Yeah. yeah, were on campus like and they saw they couldn't like afford to go to the movies and get pizza, but. They saw like like you said they like Chris Weber seeing his jersey in the bookstore. That's a good one. Fab Five's a good one. Raw Recruits is a great book when it talks about all the cheating that happens in college basketball and all the hypocrisy. It was done in the eighties, but a lot of great stories with a lot of high level players. Uh, those are two books that I would definitely recommend. Just you know read and read it up on. But it's a uh, those are interesting. And a classic movie, a classic movie in Blue Chips, of course. Ah, oh, Blue Chips definitely. Uh, the program is another great one for football. Uh, it was about a t- team that was like a fictional Florida State back in the nineties. Great, but uh, Blue Chips is definitely a good one too. Great movie. All right, that's all we've got time for today. Thanks again, Pro. Appreciate your time, and we'll continue to watch what's going on in the basketball world till next week. Anytime, I'm gonna enjoy my uh, Stanley Tucci on CNN. Uh, finding Italy. Definitely, anybody wants you know wants to win just about eight thousand calories. It's impossible not to eat while you watch it. I'm pretty excited, except I'm not a CNN guy, but it's one reason why I'll, I'll tune into CNN. All right, man, enjoy that. Thanks. Appreciate you.